When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, today Rado Talks for episode 65 of the podcast, and welcome one and all. And boy, I sure hope you are not um, having to listen to me blather while standing in line to vote tomorrow, but if so, good on you. I certainly hope everybody got out there and voted, uh, at least everybody in America, and uh, we will see very shortly what we will see. But we're not here to talk about that today. Uh, We are here to talk about all of your various questions and answers. Although, interestingly, this is going to be a shorter episode than the last few months because not that many Q's and A's came in. But folks, as always, you are the fuel that keeps this show running. Send some um, some noodlers, some puzzlers, some uh, queries and questions to questions at rotto.com so we can keep this show humming along. Or don't. And the next episode will be a bit shorter, which isn't the end of the world either, quite frankly. Uh, One other thing, by the way, um, if you're a long-time listener to the show, you know at some point recently, it became a thing to send in pictures of dogs, mostly just to tickle Jen's fancy, and she loves it. By all means, when you send your questions... Send pictures of dogs, too, if you got them. Your dogs, of course, not just any random Google search dog. And um, Jen would spend so much time, uh, you know, ooing and aahing over them that some people have started suggesting that we should post those pictures somewhere. So uh, I said, look, I'll do it, but I have to get permission because these are people's dogs. And it's, I don't know, it just seems kind of weird. So I've noticed... uh, Starting this month, people started showing pictures of the dogs with permissions. And so, I have taken a compilation of those doggy pics, and I have posted them online. I'm not saying this is trying to be some kind of canine hot or not. I mean, all dogs are wonderful. There are no bad dogs, just bad owners. But if you want to check out the links in the show notes for this episode... Hmm... Or go to doggo.rotto.com, D-O-G-G-O.com. I literally just came up with that, so i got to make the URL next. Go to doggo.com. It'll take you to the compilation if you want to see all the cute pups that have come in. And like I said, Jen loves it. So um, in the future, your questions in... your I'm not saying you'll get better answers if you send a dog picture. I'm not even implying it. But if you want to infer it, I'm not going to stop you from doing it. So, anyway, that's it, folks. Enough preamble. Hold on, and we'll be right back with, as always, first, the gaming-related questions. Then Jen will come in for a few gaming-related questions. And then uh, the last half of the show will be the personal questions. And, of course, we'll see if there's answers along the way. Hold on. We'll be right back. Okie dokie. Let's get going. We've got Andrea first up who has a follow-up about uh, Tabletop Simulator copyright. And, uh, right, let's go. All right. Game-related. See, so first of all, Andrea points out that, yes, I was right to call out that text can also fall under copyright because he had mostly been talking about art and whatnot. And the central point that Andrea wanted to make was 
From my initial statement, it seems that the existence of a tabletop simulator model would constitute a loss for the company because it may remove value from future official digital versions of the game. No, that is certainly true, but that is not the source of my personal objection. I mean, I agree that that is also problematic. Um, let's see, and uh, but you, you have a position, so we'll get to that in a second. And point number two that you're interpreting for me, copyright infringement is immoral, and tabletop simulator developers are behaving in an immoral fashion. Andrea's response is, to the number one, Andrea's impression is that most official digital versions of board games have a mostly promotional value for the publisher of the physical game. They are most of the time licensed to external developers, and most of the time the designers do not have any royalty on that. I don't know, and that's beside the point and immaterial to me, because, like I said, it is not necessarily the issue of whether a tabletop mod is potentially devaluing a future digital version of the game. Sure, that's true. The fundamental fact of the matter is people who are doing this without permission are stealing from the publisher. The publisher put tons of money and man hours into the development of the gameplay, the playtesting, the art, the graphic design, the advertising, everything. And all of that money and time and effort they have put into it, the modders are, like I said, effectively stealing. Uh, now, I appreciate, I totally get, that is not the modder's intent. I'm sure every modder will say, I'm just doing this because I'm such a big fan of the game, and I want more people to play it, and it's really great. I'm sure my mod of this game will encourage more people to go out and buy the game. And you know what? I'll grant that that could very well be true. That every single mod on Tabletop Simulator might be a net positive for every publisher out there. That could be true. But regardless, they are acting without permission. If you were to come to my house one afternoon and you know, come in through the back door, find my car keys, and then drive my car around all afternoon running errands for yourself, but you filled up the gas tank and you gave me a car wash and then just dropped the car back off, you could make the argument that I'm in a better situation than I was because now I've got a clean car, whereas before my car was filthy. Doesn't change the fact that you broke the law. You did not get my permission to use my car for whatever purpose it was, even if the purpose was for you to go out and buy me a birthday present. Because it was completely altruistic, you were still in the wrong to do that. And Tabletop Simulator, uh, I, I'm not going to call it the modders, it is Tabletop Simulator Development's responsibility to ensure they have a platform that prevents people from being able to steal from uh, publishers. Right. Um, and it'd be so easy to do for them. It would be incredibly easy. And they seem to refuse to do it. And so I find it abhorrent. Alrighty. Uh, and then your second point about whether copyright infringement is immoral. Respecting the law is part of, uh, is part of the moral... Although we can agree morals should be reflected in the law and not derived from the law. Uh, I agree it is not cool to use artwork and graphic design because it is stealing the work of the artist. But the publisher can perfectly see all the mods on Steam and ask them to be removed. Yeah, 
And you know what? I can, after you stole my car for the afternoon, I can probably tell that you did it. Doesn't change the fact that you shouldn't have done it in the first place. You were in the wrong. And you are victim-blaming me. I'm the person. You are putting the onus on me the publisher, or the car owner in this analogy, which I'll admit is not perfect, you are putting the onus on me to have to take on even more work to pay people to constantly scan to keep track of whether our copyright is being maintained. That's bogus! That is unfair! And that is Tabletop Simulator creating a... um a negative result, uh, and it's totally, wildly inappropriate from the do. And you are just making an excuse for Tabletop Simulator saying, well, yeah, we gave you the opportunity to scan to see if anybody was stealing your stuff using our platform. How about you modify your platform so people can't steal my stuff to begin with? How about that? Anyway, yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm sorry, Andrea, you do not have a leg to stand on here. By your own admission, they are literally stealing. Although, you're really odd in that you say they're stealing the work of the artist. Like, that's the only thing. There are dozens of people potentially involved with the development of a board game. You are stealing the work of all of those people. All of them, not just one or two artists. And it's wrong. It is immoral and indefensible, quite frankly. All right, and I expect I'll hear from you next month. Okay, let's move on to something I don't get quite so heated about. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, What do you got, Jelly? Alrighty, there are a lot of games that I say no to when being asked to do a run-through for a number of reasons. Two-player, Care Bear, subject matter. Um, And I am absolutely correct to say no in these cases because there are just too many games out there to cover them. So... Yay, Jelly! We're in agreement. But Jelly was wondering. Often, I do a run-through for a Vita Lasarda game, or a Mind Clash game. And in my final thoughts, I'll mention that those games take too long for me and Jen. Uh, we both prefer 60 to 90 minute games. Vita Lasarda and Mind Clash games tend to take longer than that because they're quite heavy. And besides being too long, they're often a bit too heavy for Jen's and my taste as well. So, here's Jelly's question. Why don't I say no when being asked to cover these games when you know they're going to take too long for your taste? Uh, It would just be another filter on the list of games for you to cover, making your life easier, I would think. So, wouldn't you and Jen just uh, take a pass on the next Vito game, uh, potentially Weather Machine? I've been told it's going to be a long and heavy game again. Here's why I'll say yes. In spite of the fact that Lisboa let's say, as a perfect example, proved to be too big and long for me and Jen. Doesn't change the fact that I had a great time experiencing it. I love seeing new, clever, interesting game designs. I love having these experiences. And uh, I very much enjoyed my time playing Lisboa. Or uh, on Mars, or what have you. Even though I knew, sitting down, Oh, is this going to be a two to three hour game? Yeah, this isn't going to work for us. This is not a game I would ever buy. Basically, at the end, when when I get to the final thoughts, I'm actually telling you, would this be a game I would keep? Would I want to, on my limited shelf space, although I've got a ridiculous amount of shelf space, and yet it's so limited, would I get rid of a few games to make room for this? Now, here's the deal. I'm looking for in any reason I can to say no to that question. And often, um, I will find reasons to say no from even wanting to play them in the first place. But 
the gameplay quality of a Vita Lasarda game or a Mind Clash game is never a reason because I think they're very cool. They've got interesting, novel, new approaches to mechanisms, and I want to see that and experience it. And I'm enjoying it. And then I say sayonara to it because I know full well that... Um, if, I, if Jen and I were to ever get a comfortable, lazy Sunday afternoon to sit down and play a game without the requirements of Rattle Runs Through, not that this would ever happen, there's just no way we're going to sit down and play a three-hour game. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm really glad I got to experience the game. See, those other ones doesn't work well for two players, i.e. it's a bad game to play. Uh, isn't a good fit for Care Bears, i.e. we'd be miserable playing it. Uh, don't really care for the subject matter. We'd be really kind of disassociated. I mean, those are all examples of games I say no to because I know Jen and I will literally not have fun playing. But we will have fun playing a Vita Lasarda game, even though we know full well that it's not one we would personally want to own. So that's why I say yes. I would definitely love to give it a go. I would like to see what the man has done with his latest and greatest designs. And so, yeah, it just makes sense. I love trying out new games, if they're subject matter we like, if they're conflict-averse, and if they um, work well for two. And Vita Lasarda games, generally speaking tick all of those boxes quite nicely. So, uh, that would be... Hopefully that answers that question. Alrighty. Question number two. Vital... Is it Vital or Vital? I'm sure it's Vital. Did make a filler this year called Mercado de, de Lisboa. But you didn't see me doing a run-through of it. Did they not ask or did I refuse? They did not ask. Had they asked, I would have been all over Mercado de Lisboa for seven ways to Sunday. I really wanted to give it a go. Although, to be fair, as I understand it, and I could be wrong about this, I don't believe it's actually Vita Lasarda's design. I believe it's somebody else's design, and then Vita Lasarda came in and was kind of a co-designer with the original designer. Still, immaterial. I would have loved to give it a go. The publisher, who is it? Was that published by Eagle Griffin Games? Eagle Griffin Games is really weird, if in fact it was them. They're very inconsistent with when they want me to cover stuff. In fact, most of the time I've covered their stuff is because Vital himself has contacted them and said, I want Rado to cover this game. Why aren't you sending him a copy? And they say, okay, 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 we'll send him a copy. <clears throat> and I guess... Maybe he didn't do it on this one because it wasn't his design, first and foremost, and he was a co-designer. Again, I could be wrong about that, but that's my guess. But yeah, regardless of all that, yes, I'm very excited to check out Mercado de Lisboa. Very much so. Alrighty. Number three. A lot of people in Europe have already been playing the new failed games Bonfire and Castles of Burgundy. But Jelly uh, has also not seen a run-through. Did the publishers not send copies? They should. Uh, we like fellow games a lot. You're right. They should. Um, I actually kind of... I very rarely ask publishers to send me review copies anymore because, hey, you know what? If a publisher doesn't want to send it to me, fine. There's 80-some other games that I already have to deal with that publishers do value my services and did decide it would be worth having me do a run-through and they've already sent me a review copy. I'll just put a priority on them if you, Publisher X, decide it's not worth your time to send me a review copy. That's fine. No hard feelings. Okay. Um, and you know, it's not like I need to get more games in my endless queue that I will never make it to the end of. So, like I said, I very rarely ask. I did send emails asking for both, uh, um, what's it, uh, Tuscany and Bonfire. I did it months ago, and both publishers went completely quiet. Now, just out of the blue, a Ravensburger 
Aurelia, I'm not quite sure who, did send me a copy of Tuscany. It just arrived a few days ago. Jen and I instantly fell in love with it. I'll be running through it in November. Um, I was told that uh, you know many, many months ago that uh, Bonfire doesn't go out to people until November. When I did ask, they said, yeah, Bonfire, we could definitely be getting that out in November. So we will see if they do. If they don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if it were any other designer, I'd say, okay, fine. One less game for me to worry about. But I am the only board game reviewer in the entire industry to have covered every single Steffen Feld game ever published. So I feel like I've got to, mister. So if they don't, I guess I'll eventually break down and buy a copy myself and then wait for it to work its way up through the... Uh, the rankings of requests at rado.com because, you know, that is, or, you know, if a high-level backer, I mean, generally speaking, my priorities for which games I cover are, uh, before anything else, which games have publishers already sent me. Then the second priority amongst those is, what do the voters choose? The voters get to choose amongst those 80-some games that the publishers have sent me. The voters don't get to choose amongst the stuff that I occasionally buy myself. I mean, I've got a a dozen or so games over there, or actually probably more like two dozen games that I don't know if I'll ever get to play because I bought them myself. Um, but these things do exist on request.rado.com where the more they get thumbed, they very slowly over the course of years work their way up to the top. That's why um, last month I did a video for Russian Railroads, American Railroads. I bought that at Essen years ago. Didn't think I was ever going to get a chance, but it eventually made it to the top of the request list. So that might be what happens with bonfire somewhere down the road. I don't know. Um, oh, another thing, by the way, seeing as how the publisher did not actually give me a copy, I had to buy it myself. Again, as part of the deprioritization, if I do end up covering the games, I pretty much do them for backer only, you know, because they're like every month, there's like three or four games I do run-throughs for, usually expansions of existing stuff that only Patreon backers of the show get to see. So it'd probably be something like that. But who knows? Hopefully they will make good, like they said, back in back in summertime, and they'd send me a copy in November. Fingers crossed, because I'm very excited about it. All righty. Moving right along. Thank you for the questions, Jelly. Christian has never heard um, many people ask specific tactics questions on um, the podcast, so he's not sure what my thoughts will be, but he has questions about the best tactics for Roll for the Galaxy. I feel like, have we already answered this? No, this came in on on October 6th. That was after the last podcast. Yeah, I feel like... Anyway, uh, my wife schools me every time at this game. I really feel like this is deja vu. Still enjoy, was wondering, do you have any suggestions for best tactics for the game? Do you have high value tiles from Roll 1 to getting them built, or do you focus on stockpiling tiles? I know we answered this question. Hmm... Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was somebody else. Anyway, um, I, I I don't know. What, 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 what tactical or strategic suggestions would I give for Roll for the Galaxy? I mean, the main thing is that there, there is no one rule. It depends on what tiles you get early on. Th- those first tiles you have, especially, I mean, you know, specifically your starter tiles, whatever it is that the combination of your starting planet and your starting development give you, Determine what you should be doing, whether you should be focusing on um, resource generation and sales or exploration or you know whatever it might be. And it's really just a question of of uh, using them to best ability. If you cannot um, find a way to be leveraging, let's say at least every other turn 
If you're not getting some benefit out of those starting tiles, you're playing it wrong. Um, And because if your wife is, she's going to win because she is taking advantage of stuff that just appeared in her life for free. And so there's a million, not a million, but there's tons of different combinations of your starting development and your starting planet. So, I mean, I can't list them all. It's, it really is a question of, uh, you know, you know, finding you know, how are these two particular tiles going to synergize and um, what do I have to do to make that work? Even that means exploring more. I will say that aside, the number one thing that's more important than anything else is pay attention to what your wife is doing. Um, and it should be obvious. That's one of the things about this game. It's hard not to wear your strategy on your sleeve. Your starting tiles tell the whole world what it is you should be doing. And you know what they're doing. And you can see, wow, they've got a lot of goods built up. They're probably going to try and sell pretty soon. Or, well, they've got a lot of goods generating planets and they're all empty. They're probably going to try to produce pretty soon. Um, or, you know, they've, uh, they, you know, you know, they, they've uh, got discounts, but they have, I mean, you know, they're probably going to explore pretty soon because they're not working on anything. Their two silos are empty. So you really, more than anything else, have to anticipate what is your wife going to do. And then ensure you've got one or two dice that will piggyback off of her action. Whatever it is, whether you can tell, you should be able to tell, yeah, she's probably going to explore. She's probably going to produce. She's probably going to, you know, whatever. She's, um, and you should be able to tell what it is she's going to do. And you need to put yourself in a situation there. When she does that, you will get a nice little passive bump, a passive bonus that will allow you to basically get work done for free. And then you need to be focused on what your main thing is. The worst thing you can do is um, be in a situation where, oh yeah, I know she's going to develop, and you know what? I'll develop too. That means you wasted a prime opportunity to try to do multiple things at the same time. So, I mean, figure out how those tiles work and pay attention like a hawk every round to what she is going to do. And also, if you're playing two-player, don't forget, the dummy die is very likely, more than anything else, going to explore. So it never hurts to ensure you've got an explore dice lying around as well so that you can get a nice little passive thing when the dummy player prompts out. Because just statistically, they're rolling a white die. I think, is it a 33% chance? Or is it a 50% chance? No, I'd have to go look at the dice. But... You just, more than anything else, need to be achieving your own thing while also getting passive actions based on what your opponents are going to do because you can anticipate what they're going to do. And that's the true key to success. And that's what makes the game so special. All righty. Good luck, Christian. Let's move on to Peter, who um, notices that I didn't cover microbrew, didn't like the subject matter, didn't cover brewmasters, didn't like the subject matter, uh, um, and yet there's a run-through for Taverns of Tiefenthal, a game about selling beer. Um, at the risk of being, quote, that guy, Peter is calling me out. What's the justification for covering one beer-themed game and refusing to cover others? And uh, no no malice intended with this. Not, oh, no, of course not. It's it's a perfectly valid question. Here's the deal. Um, Taverns of Tiefenthal is not really about beer. 
at all. It's about running a pub. And yes, one of the things we do in this pub is we serve spirits. Um, we serve some kind of beer-like thing. But this is not a game about gathering the hops and, um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 there's all the different Extracting the yeast and the barley and the fermenting and this and that. This isn't a game that's all about actually creating beer. Beer is incidental. I could just as likely be selling root beer or sarsaparillas or root beer shakes or... I don't know why I keep coming back to root beer, because beer's in the name, I suppose. Um, that is a game about managing your staff and, um, your, and your clientele. And, oh yeah, by the way, there's beer. If Tavers of Tiefenthal, 50% of it were all about, oh no, no, we got to go out and we got to raise the barley and we got to ferment and we got to do all this other stuff. Yeah, I probably would have passed on it. Just, uh, you know, that's... I, that's I, and I, I don't have a good reason for why... I find the act of making beer such a turnoff. But you know what? There, are, everybody has turnoffs. Uh, if it's a game about professional sports, I fundamentally don't care. For the most part, if it's a game about oh, what else? I mean, there's probably a handful of things that I just fundamentally find actively dissuade me from wanting to play. And the creation of beer is one of them. And I never expected it until I forget which game it was. I want to say not Brewmaster. You said I didn't cover Brewmasters, so it was some. Uh, it was like Beer Empire, maybe. I don't know. I think I got the impression of Beer Empire, and then another one came along, and that was enough to say, yeah. I just fundamentally, this is a good game. Mechanically, it's solid. I'm not having fun. Oh yeah, I do not like making beer. Oh, in much to say. Oh, another one. Um, we were offered the opportunity to cover Pipeline, which was a super hot Euro game last year, which I probably would have liked from a gameplay point of view, but I passed on it because I don't want to be a fossil fuel manufacturer in the modern era. It's just, it's, it's abhorrent to me. It makes my skin crawl to think of the act of doing it. So why am I so down on beer? I don't know. I come from a family of functional alcoholics, and beer was the drink of choice. And not that I was abused or anything, but you know, maybe that's just part of it. I'm not quite sure. I find beer gross. I, I don't mind being around people drinking beer, but I, the, the, I just find it gross. So yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. And Tiefenthal, the beer is practically abstracted out. So that was that's how that works. Okay, Olivier. Wonders, what are my thoughts on the Plunderous Kickstarter cancellation? It must have been a big disappointment uh, because of my involvement with the game. What do I think went wrong? Olivier thinks the campaign was not helped by a second wave of COVID confinement. Personally, I put a stop on buying more complex games to play with friends, and I can't see spending um, more on family-weight games to play with my family. I hope the game comes back stronger in the future. It looks like a lot of fun. I also hope for those things. Uh, right now... Am I supposed to say anything? I mean, yeah, kind of tentatively we're thinking about January, maybe February. I mean, we're taking the opportunity to address a lot of the concerns people pointed out. I mean, Andrew has definitely gotten the game down from 60 minutes a player to like 45 minutes a player without really sacrificing the feel of the game. So, I mean, I think it's going to... I think the game length... I mean, we heard a lot of people were just, oh, I don't need another long game. And, um, and uh, you know... That was one thing. I mean, there was a ton of stuff. I mean, Andrew could give you a long laundress. But one thing I can certainly say, we didn't do ourselves any favor by being out at the same time as Seventh Continent, which is the second biggest project of the year, and sucked up all the atmosphere in the room, or all the auction in the room, went to that game. And uh, But yeah, there were other things too. The presentation of the Kickstarter page with the benefit of hindsight, we thought it looked nice. 
but oh my gosh, it was terrible. Uh, you know, that first image that shows all of the resources makes the game physically look tiny because everything is shrunk down because there's so much stuff that comes with the game. We tried to get it all in one picture, and it turns out that made people think it's a tiny little minuscule game, and how could we possibly charge this much? So, um, you know, a big part of it was presentation because you know the tiles are huge; they're twice as big as regular game tiles, and they're double layered as well. So we didn't do a good a job of you know selling the uh, the fantasy and the reality of the experience. Um, another big problem. You got to have multiple tiers. I mean, we only had you know. Andrew just wanted to make it really simple, saying, "Hey, look, uh, you know, here I forget what it was. Ninety-five dollars, all in. You'll get everything. Easy peasy, done." There's a psychological trick, for lack of a better term, that seems to really be important for success on Kickstarter. If you give, if you don't give customers choice, they kind of are pushed away. If you have a $90 all-in, but then you have a $60, well, here's the basics. Here's the bare bones. You know, often games will say, here's the version without the miniatures, and instead you've got standees. Or here's the version without, you know, whatever it might be. That oh, suddenly people are much more comfortable with the $90 because they feel like they are getting their money's worth. And because they have something else to compare it to. We didn't have anything like that. And so... I, again, I'm not supposed to announce anything, but like, there's one thing. It's officially a six-player game, but being a six-player game means 30% more components than would otherwise need to be. That br- pushes up the price. So I believe one of the things is there the default game, uh, which is going to be in the lower range of cost, is going to be for one to four players instead of uh, six players. And there will be a separate purchasable uh, expansion that increases the game count to six. The game works great at six, it's just that it's more expensive, and it's fair point that a lot of people will never play it as a six-player game, so why should they pay extra money to get six players' worth of components? So that's one example of ways that Andrew is going back to the drawing board to try to um, find more, um, more attractive price points, and like I said, uh, presentation is huge. Trying not to come out at the exact same time that some monster game that uh, everybody's talking about is live. There's a lot of stuff like that. So hopefully we'll be back stronger. Oh, and then the other big thing was the idea was always that I would have my co-op run through about halfway through the campaign because campaigns, they always have a lull in the middle. And uh, so, it, you know, and, and literally the name of the campaign is Reveille. You know, it's like uh, the military thing when you blow the horn to wake everybody up. Dur, 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 dur. That's a Reveille call. And so we, the, the Reveille, uh, you know, here's my Reveille video. It'll be the call to get everybody excited and get through that mid-campaign lull. And it was just kind of a nice idea. Terrible idea. Because, of course, everybody's like, well, look, if I'm paying for this expansion, I want to see what it is. Where's the video for it? So there will definitely be a Rotto runs through of the co-op slash solo mode, the Reveille stuff, on day one. That was a huge mistake. So there's... there's there, you know, and, and like I said, Andrew has a laundry list. I've just mentioned a couple of them. But hopefully, all that stuff will allow the game to find its audience because it's really... I'm, it's not my game. It's in by no way, shape, or form. I just, on average, probably spend 
five to ten hours talking to Andrew most weeks on Skype about changes and tweaks and adjustments and balances and stuff like that. And you know, and that's still going on as it happens. So, but it, he's doing all the heavy lifting. This is definitely his game. I'm more, I'm less of a co-designer, more of a developer, I guess, or an editor. But um, I'm really proud of what's in there, and I hope it succeeds. I mean, and Andrew's a friend of mine. I hope it succeeds for that reason. Uh, you know, the guy could definitely use a break. Um, all right. So, fingers crossed for Plunders. Moving along, Olivier is back. Wondering what my thoughts are on the lasting effect of COVID-19 on the digital board gaming space. Gloomhaven was a game that Olivier never would have played digitally. Uh, too long, too complex. Can't assemble other players. Start a campaign. He was considering Jaws of the Lion, but it'd be too hard to find time. But the Gloomhaven digital online co-op game came out and he was blown away. What a fantastic game. The tutorial is super smooth to teach, no setup, upkeep, etc. But Olivier almost feels ashamed of playing a board game digitally. Uh, He plays board games to get away from the screen. Don't feel ashamed. There's nothing wrong with being... Screens are fine. We're not... Troglodytes. We're not Neanderthals. It's okay. I mean, yeah, too much is bad for your eyes and maybe your posture, depending on how you sit. But don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Don't don't feel shame having a good time. Don't shame yourself. If you're enjoying it, great. Um, Still, I think you would enjoy it more with the actual physical pieces and it laid out in front of the table. Um, You know, no offense. I mean, actually, I'm friends with the developers of, of that game. And, uh, you know, because they're ex-Lionhead guys, and I'm an ex-Lionhead guy. So I'm, I'm glad it's been successful. I'm glad you found a, a gateway into Gloomhaven. Hopefully someday you'll try it in Reelsy Reels and never go back to the digital. Anyway, the game is so good. Do I think Pandemic will cause a shift towards digital board gaming because a lot of people like myself will be drawn into playing more complex games? Well, here's the deal. That Pandemic, or not a Pandemic, that um, Gloomhaven app is an outlier. That Gloomhaven app has been in development for years. It has been a very, very expensive piece of software to create. And quite frankly, the vast majority of board games do not generate enough interest to warrant that kind of investment. That's why you only see really cool, super slick, dedicated apps um, you know, for big titles like your pandemics and your gloom havens and whatnot. Um, I don't think, and, and you know, and, and that there was already a viable market for that, and I don't think COVID has changed that. I think it's still the same, uh, because there are many, 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 many people who play video games on their phones or their tablets or their computers. So I don't know that it changes that. Obviously, I mean, I know for a fact that Tabletopia, and I assume Tabletop Simulator, and I assume Board Game Arena, and, um, oh, the I can't think of the name of the French one. There's all these different digital board game platforms online. I, I believe they've all had big spikes in usage. And um, I'm sure it's made a lot of people, like yourself, who never would have thought in a million years, suddenly comfortable with the idea. But I don't know that that's lasting. I think when, at some point in the future... Everyone can truly 100% feel comfortable going back out in the world and um, you know, not risking themselves or their loved ones to play a game with real human beings in real life. Uh, digital is no, rep- no replacement for that. If it were, nobody would play chess in real life. Everybody would have stopped playing chess um, down at the park and would have been doing it in the comfort of their own homes on their couch for decades now. 
And yet, real chess is still where it's at. Digital chess is not. And I don't think digital board games are going to signal any kind of fundamental change either. I, I, it's, I mean, it's great for the platform creators. Because uh, as I understand it, Tabletopia was kind of in a bit of trouble financially. And it's been a big boost to their bottom line. And that's wonderful. I'm so happy about that. But um, yeah, board games scratch an itch that no screen will ever be able to replicate. At least not until we are in full-on Star Trek holodeck simulations. At which point, it's literally just recreating the real, the physical, the tactile. Because that tactile and that human connection is so important to us as a species. You see something new, you want to touch it. You know, that's hardwired into us. And, and board games leverage that fundamental primal drive in a way that um, touchscreens can't. So, yeah, that's my feeling. Okay, next up, we have Stefan, who will make it short. Any news about Adventure Inc. from my friend in Malta? Maybe I can ask him. Okay, Stefan, first of all, Adventure Inc. is not from my friend in Malta. It's from my friend Andrew, who is currently working on trying to relaunch Plunderous. Um, the reason I'm working uh, kind of tangentially on Plunderous is because originally he uh, put Plunderous on the shelf for a while after having worked on it for years. He wanted to take a break and he wanted to work on something else. And he started pushing Adventure Inc. And that's when I really got involved with co-design with him. And then he put that on the shelf to bring Plunderous back out and finish that so he could put it on Kickstarter. And then I just kind of worked my way over into that. So here's the deal. Adventure Inc. will not see the light of day until Plunderous is done. And so Plunderous needs to be successful and it needs to be funded and it needs to be in production and it needs... I believe it's in Andrew's intention not to actually even run the second Kickstarter until it's in people's hands. Don't quote me on that. You know, things change. But I know that's always kind of biz his, his intent. You know, a one project at a time kind of guy. Prove, he got, prove he's got what it takes before he takes the next one. So yeah, Adventure Inc. At this point, it's probably... A long ways off, which is too bad because it's really cool. Um, although, man, I haven't thought about it for, gosh, almost a year now. Because like I said, Andrew's been focusing almost solely on plunders for the last year after putting Adventure Inc. on hold. Okay, next up. Darren wonders, I was curious, how I rank the Marble, Marble, the Marvel Champions expansions. You went to Board Game Geek, saw that I don't rank them, because you're right, I don't rank expansions. Um, no, I do. What I do is I basically take if an expansion is really awesome and makes me rethink my fundamental appreciation for the core game, I just bump the ranking of the core game up, or in rare cases down, but mostly up. I don't even know. I, I it's weird to say. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, well, anyway, that's not here or there. I, I bump them up if the expansion significantly changes my feeling and appreciation for the base game, and I don't rank the expansions. So. Uh, so you're right, I haven't done that. So you're asking, how do I rank them from favorite to least favorite? Let's see. I have not given that any thought. Let me go on ahead. I'm going to open up boardgamegeek.com. And then I'm going to search for Marvel Champions. And then we're going to wait a little bit. And then it's going to give me a list of everything that has Marvel Champions in the title. And alrighty. <clears throat> well, let's see, you say, did you say all expansions? Did you? Alrighty, where, where was the question? You said all the expansions. Dude, that's hard because there's two fundamentally different types. There's the characters and there's the scenarios. Uh, let me do the scenarios. Um, well, no, but there aren't very many of them, are there? Okay. <sighs> all right. 
I'm going to say my favorite of all of them, just lumping them all together. Probably my number one is, I'm going to say Ms. Marvel, because I think that hero epitomizes what makes this game so special. And actually, you know, because she has, if I recall correctly, she has more Ultra Ego cards in her deck than anybody else. And her Ultra Ego, I mean, actually, or maybe she's tied with She Hulk. Because uh, She Hulk, Miss Marvel and She Hulk are my two favorite characters to play. Because you spend most, there's more focus and attention on their personal lives and you know their professional lives and all of that than any other character. Um, you know, probably my least favorite characters are Captain Marvel and Hawkeye because they don't have any alter ego cards in their entire deck, and that's just lame. And that kind of spits in the eye of what makes Marvel Champions special. Anyway, though, um, so I'll put her number one, probably number two again, without even looking at the list, is probably going to be the Green Goblin, specifically because of the risky business. Because, again, it's all about branching out the lives of these characters because that mission, the villain spends half their time not in a costume terrorizing the city. Norman Osborn runs a successful business. And you have to spend an equal amount... And he takes off the Green Goblin costume, and then you have to deal with him when he's scheming. And I love that. It's probably... Maybe a little overly architected. It's more complex than most of them, but I just love the theme of that so much. So those are probably my two favorite, both for the same reason. What else? Dee, 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 dee. Um, the new one, Kang, probably would rank very high because I really do like the time travel and you know a lot of the thematic stuff in there is very, very cool. But as I talked about in my roundup I just put up last night or just this morning, I was kind of disappointed that they completely ignored the thematic inconsistencies. <clears throat> I guess I'll say Red Skull for my number three. Mostly for... There's one mission in there. It's the midway through the campaign one. The one where um, the heroes are hunted. And once again, it's a, it's a, it's a storyline that really lets you focus on the heroes not just punching and kicking and shooting but doing something else. Because you're a fugitive, and because switching back and forth from your alter ego form to your heroic form has big gameplay consequences, I really, really like that one. It just feels very evocative and very unique. And so since it's in the Red Skull, I'll basically add Red Skull just as a whole. Then what have you got? Alrighty. Um... I Oh, Black Widow probably next. She is awesome. I think she is the most fun hero to play, just in terms of her gameplay. She's basically a control character. It's all about... I mean, she has a special keyword called preparation. And um, that you know, and that just—it's so fun to set up all these tricks and traps because she's a master spy, and then spring them on the bad guy when they—and it just—it's very satisfying. She's a lot of fun to play. And uh, then what? Oh man, there's a lot. There's a lot. Eh, who else? Who else? Uh, I was really surprised. I really liked Hulk quite a bit more than I thought I would. I thought Hulk would be just really kind of boring, but his incredibly strict hand restriction that forces you, once again, to switch back over to Banner a bit more... I mean, because if it weren't for the fact that he just runs out of cards so quickly and it's hard to actually build up for big things, you would just stay Hulk the entire time. But, um, you know, the, the weird dual nature of uh, Bruce Banner and Hulk forcing the two different sides to work together, I think is really, really cool. So I very much enjoyed it. Although I haven't played him very much. Maybe he'll get annoying. I've heard some people don't like him, but I think that was cool. You know, um, Doctor Strange and Captain America, they're both neat. I'm going to put them way down at the bottom because they both feel like crazy overpowered. 
Like, uh, you know, they can do no wrong. And, um, I mean, they're neat. They're fun. But I, it almost feels like I'm cheating when I'm playing with them, you know, because they're so powerful. Uh, at the very, very bottom has to be Wrecking Crew. Wrecking Crew is fine, but I think it's my least favorite thing um, for reasons I talked about when I when I mentioned it in the roundup, I think, a couple months ago. I'm pretty sure I talked about it. Let's see. And uh, is that everything? Oh, and Thor. Thor's somewhere in the middle. He's fine. Didn't love him. Had no problems with him, though. He was totally cool. I think that pretty much sums it up right now, because Ant-Man and Wasp and Scarlet Witch haven't come out yet. So that's um, a very, very rough and tumble guesstimate for nobody who cared except for Darren, but I hope you enjoyed that. Okay. Then we go to Jack. Jack is back. It's another Jack attack. You just saw on gone.rado.com that I got rid of over a dozen games for the simple reason that I'm out of room, having to call more games that I like frowny face. That's a quote, end quote. What happened? Was there some tipping point? When you find yourself in that situation, how do you decide which ones to get rid of um, since your collection is already reduced down to a carefully curated collection? These are excellent questions, Jack. Does Jen give much input in the large callings? Um, well, first of all, I'll answer that last one, no. Um, Jen... Uh, Jen does not remember a game two months after we played it. So, because uh, she's got her brain full of a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, she's not really much help in that. I mean, I do definitely consider her because I'm, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on what she really, really, really loves. But, okay, to your first question, what happened? Well, prior to COVID, um, a friend of Jen's, who uh, is a board game publisher, and he kind of... One of the things he does as a jack of all trades in the board game industry, he would go to conventions and he would always uh, be he 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 had a used board game booth that he would um, set up in conventions all up and down the West Coast, and he was constantly on the road, you know, constantly getting used games and you know selling them on consignment. And when we found that out, we said, "Hey, please take a bunch of games, take them, take them." And uh, sell him a consignment. And he's like, that's cool. And that's fine. And of course, that's all had to completely stop. So more and more and more and more and more games have been building up. Have been building up. And I, right now, I'm only talking about the games that I cover and then we decide we don't want to keep them. You know, which is a lot. And um, out of the blue, Tim, the uh, head honcho of uh, Dice Tower West who I've done a couple of, you know, video reviews or video interviews with him on his channel, he said, hey, you know what? Because he runs Dice Tower West, he is trying to build up a library for Dice Tower West um, instead of relying on the main Dice Tower library having to get shipped all the way across country every year. And so he knew I have a bunch of games, and he, wondered what, he asked me, what do I do with them? And I said, I'm looking for any way to get rid of them, and I can. And he said, I will take them. I will take them all. You know, because he knows... A lot of the games I've got are cool, hot, new games. And of course, Jen and I, we've only played them a little bit, so they're in really good condition. So, um, and he said, look, I'll just take everything. And I said, okay, buddy. And um, right now, we're in the process of trying to figure out how to do that. I've be, I've gotten myself a FedEx freight shipping account, specifically so I can... Because FedEx has this very cool, generic, one-size... Or, you know... Um, flat rate freight shipping pallet option that we're trying to set up so we can just send all this stuff to him uh, on cheap because I'm selling them to him super cheap like ridiculously cheap um 
and uh, like, what is it? I think like $6 a game or something like that. Doesn't matter if it's a tiny little game or the best game of all time. Just like, boom, they're all going to be gone. Yay. Oh. And in the process of that, it prompted... I mean, at the same time, I have... I mean, I'm looking around my room right now. I've got about... 30 games stacked up on the shelves of new games I have added to the collection, but I do not have room on the shelves. And so I thought, well, okay, this is, to- this is an opportunity. Hey, um, in addition to all these hot ones, uh, what about all these other ones? And I just spent some time thinking about... I see. Actually, I need to look at this list, because I did this a couple of months ago, like you said. Let me go to gone.rado myself. Gone.rado.com. And then I will sort by... Um, Last modified, because these will all be at the top of the list. All right, and where are they? Yeah. Oh, no, I went to the bottom of the list. Okay, sort by last modified again. And now the new stuff will be at the top. Right, so, like, um, Prowler's Passage, Succulent, uh, Small Islands, Treelings. uh, You know, these are all games I would keep. School of Sorcery, Corinth Cosmic, you know, Column of Fire, Dice Settlers, Mechanica, Alma Mater. All of these games I would keep. There's no one universal answer that had me pick all of these. All of these were ones that, um, you know, there's always something about them. That just one kind. We still enjoyed playing it. I was still happy to have it. I'd still love to play it any time, any day of the week. But they all had slightly bigger than average things that just kind of niggled in the back of my mind. They weren't enough for me to say, oh, I don't want the game anymore. But they were um, enough to say, because, hey, Tim... A friend of mine uh, could use a bunch of these games, and I know they will go and get played by thousands of people over the years, and they'll be going to a good home. Yeah, you know what? There's no reason for me to hold on to all these things. Let's go on ahead and get or, you know get rid of them. I mean, Dice Settlers, that's no surprise, because I've talked about how torn I am about that game, because I love the dice manipulation, but it's an area control game, and it can be pretty mean, and it just, you know, it really tests Jens and my, um, you know, Care Bear nature, but it's so good. And, um... Oh, Swinging Jive Cat Voodoo Lounge. That's a really cool game. It's a ginormous box because of the components. It takes up the space of three games on the shelf. So it's like, I could put three new games in the space of one game. So that, you know, it's that. Uh, Succulent and Prowler's Passage. I love the designs. I love the cool, puzzly nature of uh, J. Alex Tavern. And but here and here's two of his games. We like both of them. Why? I mean, I don't have anything bad to say about either of them. It's just that I like Sentient and Gold West more. Those are like his two high watermarks. And would I ever play Succulent over Sentient? I don't know that I would. Um, if, I, if I'm in the mood for his unique style of puzzly Euro goodness. And so it just made sense to say goodbye to that so that I would have room for Calico. Um, or Whistle Mountain. You know, or... or or Twa Dice, or what have you. So yeah, I mean, there's no one universal thing. What prompted this all was Tim saying, hey, I can get, I can rehome whatever you want. And so it was mostly a job of getting rid of well over, what was it? I forget now, like 300, 200, 200 or so games. But then I just started, well, hey, I've got, so, I can clear out some shelf space here. And I made some tough choices, but every one of them, almost every one of them was unique. So it's, I'd have to go through all of them. And that's why I just had a universal, oh, I'm just trying to make room. Because I didn't want to have to type up the reason for every single one of them. Because none of those reasons were strong enough for me to want to get rid of the game. Other than literally, I'd like to make room for games I like even more. And that's what it came down to. Um, right. Okay. Well spotted, sir. Then we've got Dave, who wonders, 
where's my run-through of Castles of Tuscany? I think I talked about that earlier, so we can move on. All right. Then we've got Jack is back for another attack. Was I asked to cover Arcane's Wonders Freedom 5 Sentinels comic book game? It's based on Defenders of the Realm, designed by Richard Lanius and the Sadler Brothers. It's set in the Sentinels of Multi-Use Universe. If you were asked, why did you cite against? If you weren't, does it pique your interest? I'll have to check. I'm pretty sure I wasn't. Although I do know if I was, I'd say no. Let me just search the old inbox. Or the uh, the completed. Uh, freedom. Let's just do a search for freedom. Can't be that many. And, well, hey, here's your email. And uh, Okay, I need to search all mailboxes. And nope, they didn't. Chances are they didn't ask because the Sadler brothers know full well that they keep putting on role to resolve combat in all their games. And I keep saying, oh man, this design is so good, but it just doesn't work for me. And I'm honest. Honestly, we were never big fans of Defenders of the Realm. It just was not for us. This game, I like the superhero nature of it, but I have very little interest in the actual gameplay uh, because of the role to resolve. Because it's, it's much... It's, it's closer to the Ameritrash side of things around the Earth. And I'm sure it's very well done. And I'm sure fans of that style of gameplay will really love it because the Sadler Brothers are on fire. They are excellent at what they do. It's just what they do isn't our thing. So that's what happened there. Oh, okie dokie. Oh, and now I have accidentally, by doing that, I've closed the original window with all the questions because I did a search through the inbox and now i got to go back to find it. Do I? Yes, we do. There we are. Okay, now finding the next one. And Jen just walked in. And um, I think... Yeah. Okay. So actually, Jen would like to do her questions and answers right now. So, um, tell you what. This is going to get all kinds of crazy cattywampus, but I'll worry about that in a minute. Uh, folks, I'll be right back. Continuing with my questions and answers, but not until after I've done Jen's and my head is going to explode. So (laughs) hang on. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, I am back and ready to continue answering game questions, although it is the next day, and we have now actually finished Jen's section ahead of time. Although, again, I don't even know why I point this out, because it's of no interest to you. You're hearing it in the original linear format. So, let's go. Charles, Charles says that he's heard me say before that I wish I could play Kingdom Death Monster and see the monster AI in action. Uh, and Charles wanted to let me know there are several other games of, uh, uh, along the same design lines as uh, of, of Monster AI. Have I heard about Townsfolk Tussle? It's currently on Kickstarter. And then, of course, there's also Aeon's Trespass Odyssey, which should be delivered to Baxers uh, next year early. as what he said. He said Baxers. I'm sure it was a typo, but I kind of like it. We're Baxers. Anyway, so there are other games along the same lines for cheaper or smaller publishers that might want to review when it delivers. Actually, Charles, you mentioned it. Townsfolk Tussle, they did contact me about covering the game. And I, you know, when I read the rules, you know, well before it went live on Kickstarter, I saw, oh my gosh, this is clearly inspired by. I hope they give a special thanks to, uh, you know, the uh, Kingdom Death Monster because it's obviously doing a lot of the same stuff. However, I passed on covering it. I was really hoping they'd have Shay cover it because I wanted to see a good run through video of it, but I didn't want to play it myself. And I wish they, but they, they were only interested in me. They passed on Shay. Too bad. Anyway, um, I passed on it because. I, you know, the, uh, what's it called? The, 
I can't think of the word. Oh, the role to resolve combat was kind of a turnoff. And yeah, and I know, you know, I believe actually Kingdom of Death Monster also has role to resolve combat. So it's not like I really expect to like uh, Kingdom Death Monster. I just really like the core ideas. And I have to admit, I don't know anything about Aeon's Trespass Odyssey. Maybe that's the one. I suspect, though, that the fact that I'm looking at it and it's just I'm drawing a blank means chances are I did look at it at one point and I dismissed it out of hand and have subsequently forgot because I have learned that if somebody asks me about a game and asks me what I think and if I, I have never heard of it and when I go and look it up, inevitably it turns out, oh, it's a war game or it's a three-player minimum game or it's something I already looked at and di- dismissed. Is Aeon's Trespass Odyssey another role-to-resolve combat game? If so, maybe that's why I passed. But, yeah, uh, for folks who don't know why is Charles mentioning, there are two amazing things about Kingdom of Death Monster that I really love. One, as he's talking about, is the way they handle combat, because the you, you as I understand it, you don't... You, you just fight boss monsters. Every time, every session, you're going to have one big epic fight with one big epic monster that will probably kill half of you, and it's a really cold, brutal world, and you just have to be prepared for that. But there's a deck of cards that is put together, I think, somewhat randomly, so you never know exactly. Even if you fight the same monster multiple times, you don't know what overall tactics it's going to take because it's got a different collection of cards. And um, But after you've been through that deck once, and then he reshuffles and comes at you again, you have a better idea and you can start to learn their moves. And as you hurt them, they lose cards and therefore they lose some of their cool abilities. I think this is brilliant. And so, you know, someday I'll play it in a game that's a bit less roll to resolve And the other thing, actually, about Kingdom of Death Monster that I'm really keen on, and I think Townsfolk Tussle, this is what Townsfolk Tussle really did, is between these big epic fights, you build up a civilization. You know, the stuff you get from, you know, looting the monster monster's corpse, you know, getting the skin and the entrails or whatever, you know, that you can then convert via crafting into making your, uh, you know, your community stronger. I really dig that as well. Um, It was actually the thing I liked most about Aftermath. Um, But anyway, uh, yes, I had heard of them and Townsfolk Tussle. I mean, folks, I mean, it's blowing up on Kickstarter. They don't need any support from me, but I love the old style Tex Avery uh, cartoon art. And there's a lot of cool stuff there. But I knew at the end that the gameplay wasn't going to work for us. Alrighty. And, And again, it probably wouldn't work for Kingdom Death Monster either. But let's move on to... Kirk, who says, has just finished watching me talk about Furnace. And Kirk is very intrigued by the game. In particular, seems like it provides a lot of the feel of it's a wonderful world with different mechanisms. So much so that Kirk was expecting me to compare them in my final thoughts. So how would I compare them? Because I did not compare them. Uh, is it worth considering both of them giving Wonderful World is one of your all-time favorite games? Oh, wow, Kirk. Um, they're both engine-building games, sure. <clears throat> but... Um, I have to admit, it it would have been worthwhile maybe to draw a comparison between the two. It didn't occur to me, though, because there's one thing you have to understand about Furnace. I mean, the the mechanism for getting the components of your engine that you will then run subsequently to score lots of victory points, because these are all engine-building games we're talking about here, the mechanism of this auction-slash-worker placement is one of the coolest I've seen in years. The actual engines you build are okay. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're very straightforward. They're just either get a resource, convert this resource into another resource, or convert this resource into points. And it's satisfying to build them. 
But Wonderful World does a lot more cool, interesting stuff. Another one people wanted me to draw comparisons would be uh, Fantastic Factory, which is also a a wonderful engine-building game. And all three of these things kind of scratch the same itch. But Furnace, at the end of the day, is really less about the engine you're building and more about how you get them. And don't get me wrong, the engine itself is very satisfying. And if and, and, and you're right to bring it up, Kirk, if you play the advanced variant of Furnace where you are building this engine, but you must run it in a fixed pre-ordained um, order that you created, and that could really mess you up. And that's a big part of what makes Wonderful World great, too. Uh, it, it's really cool. It's Imagine Wonderful World without any of the thematic trappings, which are one of the things that really make the game straightforward. It's not a draft. It's an auction. And it plays in half of the time. And, uh, you know, so it packs a lot of punch in a very quick... I, I, I definitely believe that if you dig Wonderful World as much as you do, that you will also dig Furnace. And, uh, man, considering how much you love Wonderful World, I think you should try it. I mean, some people might say, oh, I don't need to own both. But, you know, they, they both have you do the same thing, but you do it in such radically different ways. And it's, it's really good. I really do think Furnace is probably going to make my top ten of the year. Alrighty. But moving on, we have Mario, who has a bunch of questions. Oh, my goodness. Here we go with Mario. How much time do I usually take to rest between filming a run-through and the final thought segment? Do I usually feel too tired after a run-through? <clears throat> Need to take a break. Um, no, not really. I I pretty much try to do it all in one sitting. And about the extent of the break is, after I'm done filming the run-through, I will get a good swig of water. Maybe I gotta go to the bathroom. Uh, but that's about it. I, 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 I just keep the energy up. And, you know, it's I, having just done a run-through, everything's fresh in my mind. And, you know, I'm probably just popping with stuff to say. If I did wait a while, I think it would be tougher to do the final thoughts. This has definitely happened. Sometimes I don't do the final thoughts to the next day. And, you know, I got to kind of rev myself back up and get into that, that headspace. So it's definitely better for me if I just do it all at once. And, hey, I mean... That's how I started doing it. When I first started doing my videos, I did them all in one take. And these days, I deal, I still do that with rundowns, which are basically the same as a run-through, except it's only about half the length, and it's all in one video. Um, so I, yeah, I think you know, right after I'm done playing and making a lot of moves, that's when I've got the most to say. So it just makes the most sense to do it as quickly as I can. Alrighty. Have I tried Orléans Stories? Any thoughts about it? You've noticed that a lot of people are trashing it. Could have been too high expectations. Orléans Stories really confuses me. I suspect it is nowhere near as bad as everybody says. Because honestly, Reiner Stockhausen is a great designer. He's really, really good. And, um... Yeah, I I think maybe it's... I'm not sure. I I have not looked into them enough because the main thing that turned me away is apparently stories one and two are both very cutthroat. There's a lot of player versus player woven in. And to me, that does not have a place in Orléans. The same as the intrigue board. I just, I actually talked about this in the roundup the other day. Why is Reiner Stockhausen just bending over backwards? Oh, it was the Essen preview. Is just pushing so hard to put in nasty, aggressive, cutthroat play into such a wonderful live-and-let-live Euro that has a little bit of racing uh, components to it. He just keeps trying to push these in, and I don't think anybody wants it. I think the vast majority of people are rejecting it. And I think that's maybe a big part of what happened with with Stories 1 and 2. Now, as I understand it, 3 and 4 
One of them is very live and let live. I don't know, either three or four. But then four, again, is more in-your-face, aggressive, let's have... Let's introduce ways for players to really mess with each other. And I suspect it will not find safe haven. And Reiner's got to stop pushing this. I need to turn Orleans into a cutthroat game. Because I really don't think that the game appeals to somebody who's looking for a cutthroat experience. All right. All righty. Expectations for Bonfire and Castles of Tuscany. Did you try them? I've already tried Tuscany. You probably know by now. It was my number one game of the month. Spoilers for my roundup I put up a few days ago. I'll be filming it this month. There's no doubt it will be in my top 10 of the year. It might, it probably will be in my top five. It might be my number two. It might be. I have a hard time imagining something eclipsing it with the games I know are still coming. And I'm including Bonfire in there. Uh, Castles of Tuscany could not be more perfect. I think it's sitting at my number 30 of all time. And if there were just a couple more features, it could have easily made it into my top teens. It's so good. And I'm shocked. I do not understand why it's getting kind of mixed reviews. I, I think it's one of the best games of the year. I think it's one of the best games in years. And uh, because it does so much of what makes Burgundy so great, but does it in a really cool, fresh, interesting way. And in the roundup, I, I kind of made it up on the spot. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if this is quite right, but it still feels right. It's kind of like, what would happen if you crossed Castles of Burgundy with the speed and elegance of Ticket to Ride? And that's something really special. All right. Let's move on, though. Uh, you also wonder about if I'm trying, if I'm curious about the new Garp Hill game, Hadrian's Wall. Um, good question. Good question. Let's take a looky-loo. Because nothing's popping into my head immediately. I have put it on my wish list as a like to have. So that means at some point I did do a bit of research and I didn't put it in his thinking about... I uh, But I, I didn't put it as love to have or must have. I put it as like to have. What is it? Oh, right. Yeah, it's it's basically a, a, um, a, a roll and write from Garfield Games, although it's from designer Bobby Hill. So it's not necessarily Shem or Sam McDonald working on it. And Bobby, it looks like, is a very new designer. Yes, this will be his first published game, in fact. So I think that's why I hesitated. But still, I think Shem has really good instincts. Although he didn't always. Some of his early games, which I played, weren't so great. But man, you know, I mean, Shem has been on a tear for the last few years. And it almost feels like he can do no wrong. So yeah, I'm sure Hadrian's Wall will be pretty, pretty, pretty good. What are my thoughts on Glasgow? Uh, do you want to try to do a run-through? Is it too simple for you? No. Uh, I We played it at the end of last month. It showed up right, I think, on the 29th or something like that. We played it right away and loved it. It's fantastic. It's... I don't know that I've seen anybody drawing comparisons, but to me, it's a no-brainer to compare it to Glenmore. It's kind of like a two-player-only Glenmore. It's very different. It's not fair to say it's Glenmore, but it has a lot of Glenmore-esque properties, but it does things very differently, and it's fantastic. It's great. Now, sadly, it did not get anywhere near enough votes to warrant getting a full run-through this month, as I did put it on the voting ballot, and I tried to talk about why I think it's really cool, but the voters said, nope! So, for now, anyway, it's probably just going to exist as an entry in last month in my October roundup, you know, the end of the month thing. Unless 
it gets enough thumbs. Folks, as always, if you want to see a run-through for a game, go to request.rado.com. Check it out. Chances are, it's if you, if you think it's a game I'm going to like, it's probably already on there. And in fact, it's on there. I think last time I looked, because somebody else asked the other day, it had like 25 thumbs. If it could get up to 75 thumbs, if just 50 people would go and find it and thumb it, it'll get a run-through. And I think that's what it's going to take at this point, because I've already kind of covered it. And like I said, the voters said the voters made clear it was not their highest priority. All righty. Do what do I think about Lookout and Cosmos two-player lines? Highs and lows of each one. Well, oh, I'd have to look at actual lists. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, I think Targi is part of the Cosmos line, and that has to be their number one. I mean, it's so fantastic, and uh, and yeah, and yeah. What are the lookout ones? I mean, oh, there's all those Uwe Rosenberg ones, right? And those are all nice. You know, the Le Havre one was... It needed a little bit... It had a couple of problems, but it was still very nice. And we do still own all creatures big and small. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know what? It's really cool, Mario, how you put handy-dandy links to these other games. If you would put a handy-dandy link to uh, you know, a summary page, I would open that up and I would rank it for you right now. So maybe, Mario, write back to questions at Rado.com next month and give me those links. I'll go straight to them and I'll give you an on-the-fly ranking of them. All right, but off the top of my head, I'm going to have to give it to of the two to Cosmos because Targi is so amazing. <clears throat> Did I check the latest expansion for Seven Wonders Duel Agora? Apparently, it replaces the loose money tokens... On the military track. Or, or you said loose, but I assume you mean lose. The lose money tokens on the military track, which you know is a problem with the base game. Wow. I did not know that. I have to admit, I paid zero attention to Agora. Because Seven Wonders Duel was so disappointing. Predominantly because the military track had you stealing stuff from other players. Which is not part of Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders has never been about stealing uh, from other players. It's always been about working with other players, paying other players for their resources, and then in duel for no reason at all, they throw in this real jerk move that is inevitably going to happen and it can really mess you up. And so we hated it and got rid of it. I'm really shocked. I haven't heard anywhere that Agora overrides that, and that makes me really intrigued. I'm going to have to I might have to seek this out now. I'm sure you've certainly encouraged me to go do a little bit more digging because, like I said, I, I dismissed it out of hand. So thanks for the head up. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> have I been revisiting my top ten lately? What is on the pipe to come? Do I already have an idea which ones you will revisit in the next few months? Are you, so you're asking? Have I gone back and replayed? Any of my top 10 favorite games of all time. Well, every month, now that Marvel Champions is in my top 10 of all time, I'm playing it because a new expansion shows up. Ant-Man will be here any day. It literally might even be down in the mailbox as we speak because I haven't gone down there for a couple of days. I only check my mail you know, a few times a week because it's kind of a pain to get to. Um, but what else? What else? Uh, I mean, I'm... I'd love to play some Gloomhaven or some Agricola or some Twa, but no, I don't think any of those are getting played right now. I mean, right now, this is the heaviest time of the year when I've got a big, huge backlog of a million games coming in that everybody's trying to squeeze under the rug before the year is out. So 
Well, no, I haven't uh, gotten to revisit any of my top 10 faves recently, and, it, and it's unlikely I will, except for Marvel Champions, because they just keep putting out expansion content. More, um, man, I mean, I'd love to play the new D deck for Agricola, but I'm having a hard time getting the publisher to send those to me. That would be a great opportunity to play some more Agricola, though. Mm. Okay, intellectual properties. Can I explain why it isn't a problem to exist at the same time, both Marvel Legendary and Marvel Champions? I mean, two card games with the same IP, Marvel, shouldn't it be a problem? I ask this, says Mario, because I've heard more than once that Fantasy Flight was only able to go with Imperial Salt because they declared it as a miniatures game with a board. Uh, at this, at the time, the board game IP was, is, still, in the hands of Hasbro, so Fan Fantasy Flight couldn't make a Star Wars board game. Okay, so you're asking, you're not asking about, hey, is it just weird? Why are there multiple games and, you know, but you're, you're not asking about that. You're asking about literally legality. Why can... Uh, this happen. This can happen because um, the contracts that publishers enter into with the uh, shareholders of these franchises, every contract is different. And you're right. Uh, whichever one you just mentioned, oh, the Star Wars one, probably whoever signed up that contract had very strict restrictions in their contract saying, we are the only ones who are allowed to do this. And chances are they paid the uh, IP holder more to more money in, in their contract to get that exclusivity rights. And chances are who, who publishes Marvel um, Legendary? Is it AEG? I don't remember now. Is it WizKids? I generally cannot think. But whichever publisher entered into a contract with Marvel um, years ago now to make Marvel Champions, they didn't put it in their contract that they could have sole exclusive rights to be the only card game based on the franchise. And so FFG said, okay, well, look, we'll come in and, and you know they entered into a contract too. Maybe FFG would have tried to get those exclusive rights, except they couldn't because there was already an existing franchise. I don't know. I mean, one thing, strictly speaking, Champions is a co-op game and Legendary is not. Legendary is ostensibly a competitive game because there is one winner, which I know is dumb, but that's officially the case. Maybe... Maybe uh, the Legendary had the exclusive franchise rights for a competitive card game, and uh, that's why FFG could come in with a cooperative one. Could be something like that. You know, it's it's all you know. There there are no universal rules for contracts. Everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to create interesting situations like this. In my thoughts for Furnace, I didn't make any mention of the dummy in the two-player game. Uh, I've been looking at the game, trying to kill. You know what? Um, this same question came up. In, uh, in in the gaming gen section. So I'll, I'll table that for now. It's going to come up in a little bit because I talked about it with Jen a bit. Because somebody else asked the same basic question about the dummy player. Alrighty. And um, then... There... Okay, okay. Do I think that eggs can be a broken strategy in Wingspan? I mean, to spend the last few turns just putting eggs on the board for direct points. I've heard people complaining about it, but in my two games, I was actually able to beat it by going for an objective card. My last one was a bit crazy. I had a five in total at the end, uh, but one was like... yeah. Okay, yes. I think it's ridiculous. I think the hubris 
on some board game geek's part to assume that, yeah, you know what, even though this had hundreds, if not thousands of hours of game testing, it just never occurred to the developers or the designers or the editors or the publishers or any of the playtesters to try that strategy. And only when the game came out did the brilliant end retail users come up with, well, all I have to do is just win the game by buying eggs. Here's the deal. Buying eggs is reasonable. It's a fine baseline thing to do. And it means that if at the end of the game, for those last couple of turns, you have not created a situation where you can do better than just trying to get a few eggs, you have not played very well. Um, Eggs, uh, I, I kind of liken it to the big money strategy in Dominion, where some people argue Dominion is a pointless game because all you should do is ignore all the cards in the market and instead buy silvers. And once you get to the point where you can start buying gold, just buy gold. And then once you get to the point where you can afford provinces, just buy provinces. That's called big money. Just do nothing but buy money and then um, you know convert that into more and more money so you can buy provinces. And here's the deal. You can play a competitive game doing that. It's boring, but it is a reasonable strategy. And it becomes the baseline. And you know that you played well if you can beat big money. And you know you played poorly if big money beats you. Because smart play, good combos, like what you just said yourself. Last couple games you played, you had much better plans at the end of the game. So what I'm suggesting is, if at the end of the game of Wingspan, you get to the point where, you know what? There's really nothing better I can do than just get a few more eggs to squeeze out a few more points before time is up. That means you played poorly. You peaked too early, and you should have been able to put yourself in a situation where you could have earned more points than that. That is the reality. And anybody who says, nope, eggs are the only way to win, then again, they are not giving credit where credit is due to all the people who came before them. And I think it's a little hubris-ish. Okay. I already mentioned my ratings on Board Game Geek have a balance between gens and my tastes and enjoyment of the game. Um, but Mario would like to propose an exercise without overthinking. What games do I think would be in my top 10 if the ratings were based only on my... If I did not take Jen into my ratings at all? Now, here's the thing. Mario also had this same question for Jen. And these last couple of questions were Mario listed as questions for Jen. And I didn't give them to Jen because I guarantee you Jen would not have an opinion about eggs and wingspan. And Jen would not have an opinion. Jen does not want to rank games anymore. She, She actively dislikes it. Whereas me, I find it a lot of fun. So I left her out. Um, right. So, uh, it begs the question then, if I look at ranked.rado.com... Well, you know what's interesting? This already has happened a bit. Dungeon Pets used to be in my top 10. And I ultimately realized, I don't think I can, in good faith, keep it in my top 10 because it's, um, it's that high in part because of Jen's deep abiding love for it. And by the way, we'll come back to talking about Dungeon Pets a little bit later on. Um, and it goes a little off the rails. <laughs> Apologies in advance. We get a little rambly. Uh, what? Onrado talks through rambling? Get out of here. Um, Alright, so my top 10 of all time is Keyflower, Peloponnese Nations, Marvel Champions, Burgundy, Trois, Agricola, Gloomhaven, Shadow and Crossfire, and Pandemic. You know what? I don't think any of these... I think every single one of these is 100% a reflection of me. Because Jen loves all these games too. 
but not as much as I do. Maybe Agricola, but I would, I mean, I would put Agricola where it is regardless. I think you, I mean, like Dungeon Pets used to be in there and I have actually bumped it down a bit. It's in my top 20 now. And honestly, maybe even that's a little high because I really dig Dungeon Pets a lot. I think it's fantastic, but I think it's always had a bit of an artificial boost because of Jen's love for it. What else has an artificial boost? Roll for the Galaxy, I think, does. I mean, I, mean, I had to get out of my top 10. I'm in my top 20 now. Roll for the Galaxy has a bit of a boost. Maybe Trajan has a little bit of a boost because I know she loves it. Escape Curse of the Temple, definitely. Escape Curse of the Temple should probably be in my top 50, not in my top 20. But it's there because of Jen. Let's see here. This is an interesting thought exercise because I mean, I, I, I generally, I don't, I, I, I don't divorce these things. What else? Okay, yeah, so definitely I think Dungeon Pets, Roll for the Galaxy, Escape, and Trajan are are bumped up a bit. And then what else? That's probably it. That's probably... Those ones, I think, jump out at me quite a bit. Fresco, I think we're into my top 30s now, but I think Fresco is amazing too. Glory to Rome, Jen loves that with a with a really hot intensity. I think that might be a little inflated also. Not that it is, again, not that these aren't amazing games, but I'm just trying to identify the ones that are maybe a bit inflated. Because I'm, you know, I'm 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 letting Jen's love for it be the deciding factor of where it is over mine. Those are the ones that really jump out at me, getting up into my top 50s. I think for the most part, Jen and I are really pretty simpatico. It's going to be the outlier if it's a game that I insanely love and Jen is like, eh, it's fine, or vice versa, or that Jen just likes. So yeah, it's not going to be that often that I think uh, we get... You know, for Jen, I can definitely tell you, um, in my top 20 is uh, Space Hulk Death Angel. She flatly refuses to play it. So I have to... It's uh, it's my weirdest entry on my entire list because it's effectively a solo game for me. And um, so there's probably a few for... Actually, no, I suspect there would be quite a bit more. Um, that this list is more a reflection of me. Because, I mean, you can go back and look at Jen's top 27. That Again, it's out of date... But if you compare Jen's top 27 to my first top 10, you can see they're pretty radically different. And so a few of her things got pushed up because of mine. But, I mean, a lot of her favorites of all time... I mean, like, another favorite of hers is Amerigo. But I, I think I've got Amerigo... I, I think it's amazing, too. So there's, I think there's only going to be a handful that are outliers like that. At least for me. There would be more for Jen. But Jen is not really incentivized... Or in, inclined, I should say. She cannot be incentivized to put uh, that kind of thought into it. And the reason why is, well, twofold. One, it drives her nuts saying, look, why can't I just really love both games? Why do I have lo- love one more than the other? And you know, she's not alone in that. A lot of people have that response when you ask them to rank two things. But also, it's just very difficult for her because... I mean, I've got a really good memory of all the games we've ever played. I can, if you put a game in front of me, I can remember what it feels like, how I enjoyed it, what really stuck out. Even if it's one I haven't played for a decade, I can still instantly get those feelings. And if I can't, all I gotta do is watch the first five minutes at double X speed of my run-through, and it'll all immediately flood back to me. It's not like that for Jen. She really has to dig hard. If she were to make another top 10 favorite games of all time, it would take her probably a weekend. Because we would literally have to go through probably 200 plus games, literally opening the box, looking at them, spending a lot of time, maybe watching videos, because Jen just doesn't 
remember stuff like this. She's got more important things to remember. I don't. <laughs> um, right. Have I ever thought about doing something like Z Garcia did on the Dice Tower to make a list for every expansion version of Pandemic from best to worst? No, I haven't, because I've thought of something better. And I was really disappointed when I saw Z's video because I thought he was going to do what I thought he should have done, and he didn't. Um, just ranking the expansions and the st- and the spinoffs, that's fine. And you know, that's a that'd be a That'd be, that'd be a pretty trivially easy task when it boils right down to it. And honestly, I don't think it'd be very interesting. The thing is, what I would f- be interested in doing, and it's on my list of things to do, it's definitely one I want to do before I put away Rotto Runs Through Forever, is I want to do a top 10, although it's probably more like a top 30 list, of every single unique pandemic mechanism. I don't want to compare in the labs to on the brink. I want to compare the bioterrorist to the hinterlands to um, you know uh, the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 way combat works in Fall of Rome. I want to talk about I mean all of these different things. Every single expansion or standalone, and that includes the. Uh, what do you call them? The, the legacy games as well. They all add anywhere from three to six totally unique, game-changing new types of rules. And that's what's interesting to me, to break all of those down. And someday I'll probably do it. But it'll be a big job, and it'll really force me to think long and hard uh, about it. And uh, that's what I'll do someday. Okay. Moving right along... Um, uh, or, yeah, last one from Mario, I think. My comment for Dulasaur Island sounds like the game is not for us. That is correct. It was not. Wait, no. Dulasaur Island was the little two-player. It was like, yeah, it was like the two-player only version of Dinosaur Island. Right, okay, it's coming back to me. Did we end up trying it? Can you elaborate a bit on why you think, as you said, the pickup, the I pick you choose content fell flat with us and might, uh, and it might have been better? Been curious to try for quite a while. Okay, here's the deal. I'm trying to remember if I recall correctly, uh, Dinosaur Island and like Dinosaur Island before it, the central thing that happens every round is a bunch of very cool dice. They're big, chunky. They're custom with uh, you know multi uh, you know, sides that have all kinds of different abilities. Get rolled and or wait no was it it was in Dinosaur? I don't think this was done in Dinosaur. I think Dinosaur was they all get rolled and then it's a draft. But in Dulasaur, it was an I split, you choose. Where the d- things get rolled and whoever is the lead player has to divide them into, okay, one player's going to get all these dice and one player's going to get all these. Except it wasn't even that. It was, here's the two packages and now the other player gets to choose. Typical I split, you choose stuff. We hated it. We hated it so much. And now, to be fair, we're not big fans of I Split You Choose in the first place because it's always hugely analysis paralysis inducing and it's just not fun. It's why we got rid of Castles of Mad King Ludwig. We just couldn't stand it over time. And, um, you know, especially for Jen, it's so ape because we have to analyze everything. And we can't, I mean, I know a lot of people say, oh, I'll just kind of go by feel, but no, we're super analytical players and it was just unpleasant. And if I recall correctly, the problem with Dulasaur Island is not only do we predispose not to like it, but it, it makes you work really hard, and then it's almost kind of immaterial because it all comes out in the wash, and it really just felt like busy work. And we're like, "Geez, Louise, can't we just have a draft? This is just annoying. There's nothing fun here. We have to do it every round. It just gets in the way of the fun, and we did not like it." Now, like I said, 
We are predisposed not to like it anyway, but we found it extra onerous there. And so, if you like I Split You Choose, give the game a go. But if you don't, stay away from it because it's probably the worst I Split You Choose we've ever seen. Um, the best I Split You Choose, by the way, we only recently played Seastead. That's the game that does it right. Okay. And reasons why I talked about it last month when I did a rundown of it. Sam. Hello, Sam. There's been some consternation online over the success and failure of online conventions this year. Opens Sam. Sam feels a silver lining has been... Oops, hold on a second. I need to confirm we're still recording. Yes, we are. Cool, cool, cool. All right, back to you, Sam. Where are you? Although, actually, I'm a bit thirsty. Let me get a drink of water. Mm. That must have been pleasant to listen to. Okay, sorry. I could have just hit the pause button. Sorry. I feel like a silver lining has been, for those of us at home, publishers are making more of an effort to reach out and tell us about their games, and, and Sam is enjoying that quite a bit. Do I feel? Does Rado feel? Why do I always change pronouns? I should just read it as is, but I can't help myself. Uh, Sam asks, do I see publishers making more of an effort, and if so, how? Have I heard many other gamers feeling this way? Have I found any benefits for myself in the COVID convention model? Uh, and Sam wonders, is he selfish for liking this better? <laughs> Don't worry, Sam. It's cool. Uh, are they making more outreach? I guess... And I guess that's certainly a good thing, because it is certainly true. I mean, Scott Alden, the head of Board Game Geek and I, often discuss just how mind-boggling it is to us that the majority, not just some, but the majority of board game publishers just can't be bothered to do the simplest, easiest things to get their message out to gamers. They're just so unprofessional. Um, you know, I mean, it's not like this is hard stuff to do. And you know what? If um, Maybe it is the case that they don't feel they have to because, hey, look, we just go to a Gen Con and an Essen and a, you know, or whatever it might be, and we just get most of our sales there, and that's good enough, and it's always been the way it is, and why do we have to learn to do new things? And suddenly they disappear, and so it forces them to learn new, new things. And if that's true, great. I have to admit, I can't say if your observations are correct... Hmm. I mean, I don't really know that I've seen a change in the number of mailing mailers that go out. I mean, CGE has been very, very, very aggressive almost about you know self-promoting. But I think they've always been pretty good about that in the first place. They've always been one of the publishers that's good about this stuff. I mean, you know, they're one of the publishers that actually has a dedicated marketing department um, that are, are you know whose job it is to you know uh, get the games in on people's minds. Um, you know, which is again, most board game publishers seem to think, no, we just got to make the game and then just put it out there, and then magic happens. And so, yeah, maybe it's a good thing because uh, it's it's just so weird. But even still, the fact that the vast majority of publishers can't even be bothered to go on BoardGameGeek and just hit the subscribe button for their game so that every time any player asks a question or makes an observation or you know, uh, you know, does cool stuff for them, they should just be there on BoardGameGeek saying, hey, that's fantastic. It is so incredibly easy to engage with the audience on BoardGameGeek and get them on your side and you know, make, you, make you a human. Uh, you know, put a human face of your company out there and almost nobody does it. 
It's shocking to me to see questions just sit there for days or weeks and maybe get answered by other players, but publishers and developers and designers very rarely. There are some exceptions, but the vast majority just can't be bothered. And meanwhile, I subscribe to all the games I like, and I see all these things. I could answer all of them, but I'm not going to because it's not my job, and it is a publisher's job to provide uh, consumer outreach. So... I don't know. Maybe you're right. And maybe they're getting better. All I see is all the things they're still doing wrong. And, uh, oh man, there's a lot. There's a lot, a lot. So, uh, maybe there's, I mean, I, what I see is the ones who already made the effort are now making more effort. And the ones who didn't, Maybe they're making a bit more effort too, but considering how little there was in the first place, to me, it's not very noticeable. Uh, but I could be wrong. It's I have to admit, it's not something I've been particularly cognizant of. And in part, that's because I have not been paying attention to the virtual conventions at all. They just have... Z- I, I, I fired them up, looked at the interface, thought to myself, this is done so poorly. This is done so... With such a complete and total lack of understanding of what makes a convention experience fun, the sense of discovery. Because uh, I, I, I specifically the Essen one and the Gen Con one before it, they tried to emulate that feel of oh look I'm just walking around and and and, and you know I mean a big part of it one of the best things about a convention is uh, walk around the corner and say oh my gosh what's that I never even heard of that that looks fantastic can I sit down and play that please and to do that you need to have the games front and center. But the um, creators of these virtual conventions didn't do that. They did the pr- they they allowed you to browse a virtual map of publishers. All they did was they recreated their convention uh, maps that you know that show here's where Fantasy Flight is, here's where Cosmos is, here's where Artipia is, here's where Rio Grande is, whoever, and they just recreated that digitally. And they they completely ignore the fact that. Um, Yes, I in a real convention, I will use my map and I'll see, okay, the game I really need is from Rio Grande. I, I got to go check it out. Here's where I are on the map. But then I have to walk from point A to point B. And during that walk, chances are I'll see five things that look really amazing I've never heard of. And that's because I see the games. And you know, I've said this before. These interfaces for these virtual conventions should not be publisher-focused. They should be game-focused. It should look like... Um, a Pinterest feed with just an infinite scroll of just like big, gorgeous board game art and um, you know components and little animated gifs of the pieces moving around. And as I just scroll, it would in some way through this list, um, you know, it, randomly. Or I guess publishers could pay more so that they tend to be they tend to appear more often or they appear at the top of the list because of course in the real world, publishers pay more to get a bigger booth. So they should be able to pay more to get their games more quickly spotted because they get bigger thumbnails as opposed to smaller thumbnails. But still, I should be scrolling through like a big hodgepodge patchwork of beautiful games, showing what they look like, all of them cleverly, smartly composed to make me want to click on them to learn more about that game. That's what a virtual convention experience should be. And then I click on it, and it takes me to a page that does a good sales job. And again, publishers are terrible at selling their own games; absolutely atrocious. And uh, but you know, it should uh, a good sales job and the opportunity to then go play it on Tabletopia or Board Game Arena, not Tabletop Simulator. Because forget about all my personal problems with Tabletop Simulator that I seem to be having to talk about every month. Because Andrea keeps coming back with more questions. But that aside, here's the other problem with Tabletop Simulator. 
if I want to play a tabletop simulator game, I have to go install Steam. And then I have to create a Steam account. And then I have to download and buy Tabletop Simulator for 10 bucks. And then I have to go to some weird Steam interface to download the modifications. And then I have to manually install them. Tabletop Simulator is, from a usability point of view, garbage compared to Tabletopia, where, or Board Game Reader, or I wish I could think of the names of the other ones, the Jolette, something like that. All the other ones, hey, that's an interesting game. I click it, I click play, and boom, I'm just playing it in the browser. So that's what a virtual tabletop convention, that should be the backbone of it. And it wouldn't even be very hard. And the fact that, um, you know, the two biggest of them, Essen and Gen Con both royally blew it in the biggest possible way. Just was mind-blowing to me how badly they did it. So, sorry, that's not exactly answering your question, Sam, but it gave me the opportunity to get on a soapbox about something. So, um, hopefully that answered your questions. Let's move on to Ken, um, who points out that um, I may recall that What's Your Game finally launched their delayed Madeira Kickstarter campaign in September 2019 with an estimated delivery of March 2020. COVID delayed this delivery, as it did for many others. However, Unlike other campaigns, What's Your Game seems to be unable to provide timely updates. You know what? This is dovetailing wonderfully into the previous question. Uh, continuing. Uh, it's really pissed off a lot of backers. As of this date, the 29th of October, their last update was from the 9th of September, visible only to backers, which seems to not have even provided a new estimated delivery date. I'm not a Madeira Kickstarter backer, but I was looking forward to backing Zhang Guo's campaign when it happens. Uh, if interested, you can read some of the backer comments here, and he, it gives a list to the, you know, the, the comment thread. So, question from Ken. Why do I think that What's Your Game has had such difficulty handling Kickstarter communications when other, even smaller companies, uh, say, Kenetta Games, Obsession, can be super responsive? Am I overreacting and thinking that I should avoid What's Your Game's Kickstarter campaigns based on their gross mishandling of this one? And lastly, any insight into why people who can make such great games can't realize they aren't good at managing a company and should try to do something about that? Their games and expansions are so often out of stock and... Uh, the delay launching the Kickstarter and other projects, Brazil, uh, all show that they're really losing sales and goodwill. Okay, let's do these one at a time. Um, why is What's Your Game having such difficulty communications? Because, and here's the deal. Some people are just not good at communications. Online communications, I don't understand why. I will just have to take it at face value that there is something about this that is implicitly difficult. I say I have to take it at face value because it's not. To me, it's incredibly easy. This is not hard to provide the most basic modicum of customer service. There's a few simple rules. I'm not even going to articulate them because they're so obvious. And yet, it's not just what's your game. I'm not going to say a majority of publishers fall prey to this, but a shockingly high amount do. And like I said, this is a follow-on from what I was complaining before, how publishers can't even be bothered to use um, Board Game Geek as a resource for community outreach when it's just there and it's free. It costs them nothing to do it. And they just don't do it. And here's the deal. What I do know of What's Your Game, because I met them a couple of times, I, I think the all I believe... Don't quote me on this, I could be wrong, but I certainly got the impression that almost the entirety of the operation is a husband and wife. And I think maybe they've got some part-time contractors who help out with, you know, like graphic design and whatnot. But it's a small, 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 small shop. And 
one, well, here's one thing I'll definitely tell you. English is not their first language. That's going to be a problem for them. I'm, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, so it's, you know, they're they're probably not as comfortable communicating in English. I mean, if probably if they were only servicing, I believe they're Italian. If I maybe they're Spanish, I don't remember. They've only ever spoken to me in a very thick English accent. They're wonderful, charming, lovely people. I've sat down with them a few times and looked at their games at Essen and also at the uh, um, the Lyricon in Portugal. Just uh, charming, great people. I don't think anybody who's ever met them would have a bad thing to say about them. Um, but what uh, works in person... Just because a person is good and affable and personable and charming in person doesn't mean that just instantly translates for them online. Why? I do not know. And I can't know because to me, this is all super easy. It's like second nature. But they have a problem with it. And they are not alone. What does that mean they should do? They should go out and hire Forrest Bauer, uh, Bowers Game Corner, just to pick somebody at random uh, who is personable, high energy, articulate, and they should hire him part-time as their media spokesperson. And the fact that they don't do this means that they just... You know, some publishers have realized this. And, and you're seeing it happen more and more. You uh, see uh, Lance Meister, the Undead Viking, uh, getting uh, brought on first by Tasty Minstrel Games, and now... Oh, I can't think of... Oh, his publisher. Oh, I'm so sorry, Keith. I can't think of you. Know, they do the uh, Champions of Midgard. Um, you know, and you saw Tiffany Ralph, who I now believe just goes by T, uh, hired to be you know the media, uh, you know, sales interface outreach person for uh, Haba. And um, was it Mythic Games? They hired Sam Healy. All board game publishers should be doing this. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of really sharp, charming, articulate, passionate people who have decided to try to make a career um, doing board game media, and they're never going to break through. Because you know the board game media sphere uh, is, has a few people like me, and Tom Vassell, and Rodney, and Shut Up and Sit Down, and a handful of others who were in the right place at the right time and just got lucky. And, you know, and you know, not just luck, hard work and all the rest of it, but it, a, still a sizable portion of luck and just being in the right place at the right time are at the, are at the top of the hill. And there's only room for a few people at the top of the hill. And most people will toil in semi-obscurity forever, no matter how good they are. But, um, honestly... What's your game? Should be looking at those videos, uh, you know. And so Forrest Bauer, he's a friend of mine. He's really great. You know, he, he's a he's a stay-at-home dad trying to make a career out of this. And what's your game is insane not to have him be the front man for their stuff. Um, uh, but uh, John Perkis, for a brief time, John Perkis was hired to be the front man for I can't think of the name of the publisher, but the one that did the uh, the two-player relationship game. I can't even think of the game now. My brain, I remember stuff, but. Only if I have something in front of me to see it. Otherwise, I just draw a blank. But this is what publishers should be doing, and it's ridiculous that they are not. That they, um, you know, as soon as a new person shows up trying to make board game videos, and they prove that they can consistently produce, that they have good production quality, and um, that they speak well, and that they are entertaining, 
um, you know, small publishers like What's Your Game should be waiting in line to gobble them up and say, hi, we'd like to take you on as a, with a retainer, as a contract, to be our front man because we aren't doing it. We just want to make the games. And we're happy to meet people at conventions, but this online thing just doesn't work for us. And it's ridiculous to me that What's Your Game and many, many other publishers haven't done that yet. It's just a no-brainer. Um, yes, it costs money, and it's not like anybody goes into the board game industry to get rich. Um, but, you know, Jamie Stegmeier notwithstanding, and, and uh, who else? Who's gotten rich off of board games? Jamie Stegmeier, Isaac Childress, uh, um, Alan Moon... Probably very few people have gotten rich off of board games. And um, so I appreciate what's your game. You know, they probably got very narrow, razor-thin margins. But you know what? You could probably get Forrest Bauer or John Perkis or any number of other channels for a song. They would be happy to come on and do this work. And it would pay dividends hugely to um, you know, be the front person for your Kickstarter campaign and for whatever videos, whenever you... The number of times I have seen publishers just go on to you know, the live streams that BoardGameGeek puts on every year at every convention, and it's always the publisher or the designer showing up and trying to demo their games and doing such a terrible job, not because they aren't good people, not because they aren't smart people, but because they have just not developed basic media savvy. The ability to present ideas in tight, fast, impactful, and engaging ways, to always keep talking, to carry a crowd, to project, all of these things. These are learned skills. And if you haven't been doing it for a long time, you, you can just assume, oh yeah, anybody can get on camera and just be engaging and entertaining. Most people can't. So that's my feeling, and that's what What's Your Game should do. Now, to your other stuff, should you be worried about them? I don't think so. Here's the deal. I do know for a fact that What's Your Game were kind of nervous uh, because... Well, which one was it? It's... I can't think of it now. The, it was whichever... No, the Madeira expansion, which, if I recall correctly, I did cover. They sent me a prototype for it. And, this, you know, I talked to them about it. You know, they were like... You know, they, they, were, they were nervous, optimistic. You know, this is the first time they've ever done it. They didn't want to do Kickstarter stuff. But, again... Nobody gets rich making board games. And so they wanted to ensure the financial stability of their company and being able to effectively get pre-orders for their games and ensuring they get the money up front before they produce the game is a huge boon. It is a great stabilizer so they can stay in business and continue making more games. And um, I don't think you're to a point where you have to worry about them. Because here's the deal. Chances are, what's your games? Every game they've ever produced has probably gone through this exact same process of delays and um, you know, sec missteps and all of that. It's just you never knew about it before because they never talked about the game until two weeks before it was going to appear at a convention. Because they just decided, you know what? Um, we found this is hard. There's always things that go wrong. You know, shipping delays, customs issues, uh, you know, printing overruns, you know, all kinds of problems. And so we just decide we're not going to talk about the game until we know it's done. It the ship is almost in port, and we're about to go to a convention. That's their whole business model, and it's done well. But they want to grow. They want to be able to do more, and so they decide. Well, you know what? All these other publishers. They seem to be pretty satisfied. How hard could it be? And the big thing they didn't realize is, as soon as they tell somebody 
early, relatively early in the production process that, hey, here's the game and here's our estimates for when it's going to be, they forget that every one of their estimates always is wrong and they need to triple the length of their estimates. And they didn't do it. And um, and now they end up with people upset with them in large part because they don't have a natural affinity for customer service and um, you know community management, which is why they should hire somebody to do that for them because it's all solvable. And it just requires communication. And to your first question, I don't know why this is hard. It's it seems to be a learned thing. Not everybody has the skills. I mean, geez, Louise, talk about everybody not having the um, you know a good online skills. Tom Lehman is one of the greatest board game designers of all time, and he is a borderline troll on Board Game Geek. He just uh, you know is a bull in a china shop. Just does not work. You know, has burned so many bridges over the years. And if his games weren't so amazing. You know, I don't know if he'd still be making games right now. And, you know, and it's not like I'm, I've met him in person. He's a wonderful, warm hearted, charming, effervescent person in real life. But online, he's, he is hard to deal with. And I'm sure he would have a hard time understanding why anybody feels he's hard to deal with because not everybody has good online skills. All right. So that would be my long winded answer. Hopefully, Ken, that's what you were looking for. But, oh, don't rule. Uh, I am sure what's your game will get those projects done. They will continue to produce. It's just that the world has never seen that, yeah, when you pull the curtain back, making board games is a sloppy, imprecise mess. Uh, modern board game industry is is not as does not have the same structure, infrastructure in place that Hollywood does. Because Hollywood has been making movies and TV shows now for decades and decades and decades. We're, you know, the industry as a whole is still learning best practices even as we speak. And uh, yeah, every, you know, every game runs late without fail. It's just most of the time you never hear about it because they don't announce it until they're confident everything's in place. And so I, I'm, I'm confident in what's your game. Okay, moving right along to Nigel, who has the, this is an awesome shot of a dog. Nigel. What, uh, this is Charlie in his favorite chair. And um, as you will hear later, folks, uh, we are going to be putting pictures up. I have to go show this to Jen. That is, that's like a professional photographer shot, and he's awesome. And I just want to come over there and give him a good old scritch between the ears. And I'm instantly in love with Charlie. That is an amazing picture. And you guys will see it soon. I haven't figured out how to do that. I have to go refilm my intro to explain it, but I'll think about that later. Because I'm doing everything out of order this month. So anyway, though, Charlie aside, expansions in the annual top 10. Um, Charlie points out, he thinks my recent decision to include a separate list of expansions in the roundup, which just went up yesterday, was a great idea. Have I considered extending this format to my top 10 of the year videos? I realize this may mean extra work, but perhaps it could be a smaller list, say top three expansions of the year, sort of a mini expansions for your usual top 10. Best wishes, Nigel. Here's the deal, Nigel. I do that already. Um, I talk about just new games in the top 10s and the follow-up top 10 in April the following year. But if you're a Rotto runs-through backer, if you are a rambler, which means you give me two... If you give me $2 every month, 
The cost of a cup of coffee. Not even that. Cost of a half of a cup of coffee. I will give you a new video every month. Uh, actually, for the last couple of months, I've just been doing exclusive run-throughs of games I probably won't cover otherwise. Um, but I do a lot of other stuff. I've done exclusive top tens. I do extensions of existing top tens, including, hey, by the way, folks, here's all the other stuff. Um, that I didn't talk about in my top 10 of the year or my top 10 conventions thing or stuff like that. So I do these things already. Um, I make them exclusive videos So because I feel it is important because I'm not... For a while, I used to actually do physical rewards for people who actually back the show. And that was such a nightmare that we stopped doing it. And I realized, okay, I need to start doing... Um, I can't. I, I, we can't keep doing these physical rewards. So how about we do exclusive content? And the exclusive content every month, depending on what you back at, at the very least, you get that ramble. And for $2 a month, personally, I might be a bit biased, I think it's worth it. I really do. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, this year, you, a player, or, you know, folks who do back at that level will get that list that you're talking about. Now, here's the deal. You don't have to pay me 2 bucks a month. You can decide once a year to give me $2, and then that basically unlocks all my rambles for an entire month. And for an entire month, you could watch all 12 rambles that you missed for the previous 12 months, and then just make sure you don't set it up as an ongoing every two months you pay me another $2. So there's ways you can see this info. I do believe this is valuable info. You're right. It is a lot of work. And um, the backers of the show get to see it. And thank you so much for the picture of Charlie. It is such an awesome picture. I feel like I should give you backer status. But unfortunately, Patreon doesn't let me do that. Okay. Um, Frank. Frank, Frank, Frank. Is not sure if it's because of my recent foray into the world of board game design. He's talking about Plunderous there. Or the Revelry expansion. But I've noticed... But Frank has noticed me talking more frequently about house rules that I employ to make some games work better with two. I don't know if that's true, Frank, but I'll come back to that. Do I have any plans on rating games based on these house rules? For example, uh, you could rate a game without house rules, you normally do, and you could uh, then have ratings in brackets with the house rules. You could then link those house rules to the bracketed game rating um, so that your army of two-player gamers could easily find them. What do you think about this? I think there is a fallacy in your initial assumption because I can think of one game where I have actually said, you know, in the last six months, where I've said, this is how you should play the game. I am proposing a variant that is different than the official rules for the game. And that game is... What's it? Uh, Pandemic Season Zero. Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. Because I came up with home-brewed rules for um, how to play the game after the campaign is over. I made a video. I put it up the other day. Uh, um, and I played it. I think it's great. And I stand by it. And, but here's the deal. I stand by it in part because I went and got Matt Leacock, the co-designer, you know, the creator of Pandemic and the co-designer of Season Zero, to give me his thoughts on it. And he said, looks pretty good. If he hadn't said that, I don't think I would have actually made a video of it. And I would have, I would have posted about it on BoardGameGeek, but I wouldn't have made a big deal. Uh, it was only because he gave it a preliminary... He didn't see... I, I specifically asked him, do you see any problems, any balance issues that I would have introduced with these? And he said, I don't see any red flags. That was the important thing. And <clears throat> it is a lack of that kind of back and forth with publishers that prevents me from normally proposing that players should play a different way. Now, what you're referring to is 
you, uh, you feel like you have seen an uptick. And you might have. I'm not quite sure. I'd have to go back and check. But you feel like you've seen an uptick of me in Final Thoughts saying, if only the publishers had done this. If only it had been, you know, this system had worked this way instead of the way they chose. Now, here's the deal. Whenever I talk about those, I always hasten to add. Now, maybe I forget sometimes. I am only human. I do tend to goof. But I always try to add that who am I? to make this suggestion. Chances are what I'm suggesting is something that the publishers considered themselves, and I'm going to take it on faith that they have a good reason that they think it's in the game's best interest to be played with the official rules, and that what I'm suggesting was not the way to go. So I'm not actually... I very, very, very rarely suggest that you should play a game a different way. It's only a handful of games in history. Uh, Time Stories. Its two-player implementation was horrible. I felt it was... I felt it detracted from the quality of the game so much, so I came up with my own. And um, those circumstances are very, very rare. And I do tend to talk about them at great length. And so it's it's not like it's a secret. But me thinking that, boy, I, I think we would have enjoyed the game a lot more if uh, this if this thing was over here instead of over there. That's just me giving my two cents. I am in no way, shape, or form trying to... Um, suggest that this is how players should play the game. And if they asked, I would say, you probably shouldn't do it because there's probably a reason that the game is better for not doing it. I'm just saying, here's why Jen and I didn't like it. We didn't like this feature of the game. Maybe we would have liked it more this way, but I'll never know because they didn't do it that way. And I'm certainly not going to commit the time and resources to playtest it to say it's worthwhile. So that's that's how that works for me. I make suggestions all the time. It's one of the reasons I like uh, doing... Kickstarter, because often those suggestions come along and the publisher ends up changing based on that. Um, and and I, I get a really good feeling about that. But, you know, if it's a retail game, you know, the ship has sailed. It's in the box that way. So, yeah, I don't think there's been an uptick. If, if, and if there has been, it's really just a coincidence. Because this is something I've always done. I've always said, we didn't like it. We wish it had been this other way instead. Maybe I've just been stating it incorrectly recently for some reason. Okay, phew, that's it, folks. We are through the gamey game stuff that does not include Jen, which means if you hold on to your horses, we'll be right back with Jen to do the rest that we recorded yesterday when Jen decided she needed a break from what she was already doing. So hang on, everybody. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, welcome back. It's Jen o'clock. Woo! Woohoo! Says Jen. She's got a cup of very hot chocolate, which she almost spilled all over me. That's because you came charging out of the room without looking. I had places to go. Yep. And um, water bottles right. refilled. So we've got a small handful of gaming-related questions that Jen may or may not weigh in on as a continuation of the gaming questions that I have yet to finish because everything's just gone all cattywampus out of order. <laughs> Um, I wanted to get something done today that would make you feel I got something done. All right. Well, we should play a game. We maybe. did play a game. Yes. All righty. Um, so, do do doodly do. Right. Okay. Yeah. So here we go. First game related question for Jen from Jack. I'm sure you're going to get someone else asking, but I want to make sure it gets asked. What breakthrough did you two experience in September regarding Dungeon Pets? I was so long ago. It was very long ago. And Jen saw this right before I hit the red button to start recording. She said, I don't remember. Do you remember what it was? And I'm like, I'm hoping you remember it. 
uh, because apparently we've both forgotten it now. Um, Have you forgotten it? I, yeah, I, I don't oh. remember the figures at all. I remember that. Okay, so I, I, I suspect if we walk through the process, it'll jog our memory. Yeah. So uh, a high-level Patreon backer had uh, asked us to play Dungeon Pets um, because he felt bad that Jen hadn't gotten to play one of her favorite games for five years. And so we sat down to play it as a Rotto Relaxes. I think it was ironically a Rest and Relax. And we started recording ourselves, and we got about halfway through the game. And... I forget who prompted, probably me, and said, you want to keep going? And the other person said, I don't know. And um, and it was just obvious neither of us were having fun. And uh, so that led us into a very long discussion about why we were having fun, uh, not just with this particular session of this particular game, but about games in general. And as I recall, the first worry was, wow, has Jen's approach towards gaming or her, her um, acceptance of heavy complex fiddly gaming changed so much that one of her former because this is, is this now one of her former favorites because why are we not enjoying this I mean don't get me wrong I was enjoying it um, but I was just saying I, I was pretty obvious to me that Jen was not really into it and you know this was going to be filmed and like oh this is not really going to be very much fun for people to watch and maybe we should just stop and and after we're all done who cares if it was a good video we made us some other video and that was fine and um, honey do you not like Dungeon Pets she's like no I think I do I don't know. Do I not like it? And I was like, but you used to love this. And so it prompted us to spend a lot of time talking about what was the situation in our lives when we would play. Because, you know, this is, it's, it's a very strange thing I've noticed. More and more over the last few years, or I should say less and less, Jen has had patience for big, heavy, complex games. Yeah. Um, she just uh, isn't as inclined. I mean, I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm having to start solo them. I mean, the uh, what was it? The most recent Mind Clash game with the dinosaurs. I don't remember the title of it off the top of my head. But I had to solo the first half of that, and it was so good. I was like, okay, I think you can handle this, but I was worried she was going to be too much for her. And it's like, there's no way any of this is as heavy as games we used to play. I mean, because it wasn't just Dungeon Pets. We used to play, on average, much heavier games. Yeah. And so, um, it's it's not like she suffered some kind of brain malady or something like that. So what was it? Brain and, fog. And and that's what prompted us to start, you know, investigating and drilling down. And now that we're now I'm articulating this, I'm what I'm recalling this coming from is when we use when you used to enjoy dungeon pets. This was back when uh, we were still living in England. And we were in a very different place. And there were quite a few things that were different about my life, our lives. One of them is the fact that I was still working full-time in the video game industry. And um, we played... We didn't play... We, we, we maybe played games in the evening sometimes. I think for a while we were actually going to the Woking Gaming Group as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, Jen was able people. to handle... Jen was able to handle you know, evening gaming back then much more so than she can now. And like, yeah. what's going on? What What is... Why? why? Why are her tastes changing? Is it just changing taste? Does that mean we should stop trying to cover games like this? That was just, it was a really... It was kind of scary for me. It was like, if Jen can't handle one of her favorite games of all time, geez, no wonder she can't handle you know these uh, these Vita Lasarda games, ironically, because I ended up talking about that uh, in the previous uh, question. So there's a... And what was it? Oh, I, 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 one of us made the observation. It was something about back then, 
getting to sit down and play a game. Because we would uh, mainly, we'd maybe play like some Carcassonne Castle in the evenings. Or some like, or, or yeah. a Ticket to Ride Europe. Or, you know, light stuff. And it was always Sundays. Sunday morning, we would always oh, play yeah. some big, epic, long game. It didn't matter how heavy or how crunchy. Yeah. Whether it was, you know, Railways of the World or Dungeon Pets or anything. And, you know, but nowadays I would worry Jen wouldn't care for that. Or would, would not be able to invest herself in it. And, you know, because it's not like our lives are more stressful and more complex now. I don't think her life has changed much at all. She still handles all the day-to-day stuff with, you know, managing our finances and 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 all of that, and she still has a successful glass business where she has to be um, responsive to people around the world that want her to make stuff. I guess maybe you do have more stress now because back then you were um, mostly just making stuff to sell in local galleries. Yeah. Whereas now you basically run your own store. So maybe it is more stressful for you now. You have more, you know, you're doing more bespoke custom jobs and you have to do more outreach to customers. But still, for the most part, her life hasn't changed. But the biggest thing is my life has changed so much. Yes. Now I am here 24-7. Uh, 365. And, <laughs> Except when I escape for a month. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, she's the one who runs away for a month to get away from it. And um, and we're I'm constantly pushing to play games. And what used to be a very rare special thing because um, Jen didn't see me. It used to be I was out of the house. I you know I worked eighty to hundred hour weeks for years at a time, basically. Um, very rarely what, did I ever like work less than 50. And that was like, oh my gosh, I'm only working 50 hours this week. That's insane. <laughs> um, and so... He would work only around holiday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sneak it in while I was asleep. There's, there was a lot of work to do. And so it, it was like a... And I don't remember if this is what we ultimately came up with, but it was definitely... It, it was part and parcel with the observation you made in the past about you know your ability... Oh yeah, that's what it was. It's that playing those really heavy games on Sunday, I was taking a vacation from work because if I work for six six days a week, or um, and you know for twelve to fourteen hours a day, I'm out of the house, yeah. and then one day I'm home and we spend half of that day playing some big game. It was like a holiday for me, um, and it was a holiday for you too because you got to see me, and it was the only time you ever saw me, and it made those much more special. Yes. And now, in this um, cavalcade of games that never ever stops, it's it's hard. You know, you know. I don't know. What was it that it was the fact that it was special allowed you to invest yourself and turn off your brain? Because the problem is, you won't dig a heavy game now because you're like this is just too much. I've got too many other things going on. Give me something light. Give me something medium weight. Give me something that'll take less than two hours because I got other stuff I got to do today. And um, and it didn't used to be that way because of the circumstances we were in. Yeah, I would say that's very very true. But what I mean, I'm not I'm not quite sure if that was it though. Uh, I think it was essentially that we're, I'm just less willing to really invest in something mm-hmm. in time, the time and the energy investing in a game. I think it's just. I don't get anything at the end of it, meaning I haven't got a lovely new necklace or, you know, I haven't made anything. I don't have anything physical to hold. And that's one of the things I really like. I like having completion of something. Right. So, um, but that's always been the case. I've always felt that way. Yes. But I, th- I, mean, I think the difference is you did generate something that was real and of value to you 
back in those days because that was three uninterrupted hours I spent with my husband. Yeah. And he was not paying attention to work at all. And that was as real to you as any glass art you make. Yep. And now it's not. Now it's just, okay, it's the next game. And it's the next game. It's the next game. And you, I guess that means you fundamentally do not value just the joy and the act of playing itself. Or I at least... when it's a really good game. Well, yeah. I mean, but... Uh, but um, that's maybe we should start doing that when we both look at each other and go, "Wow, that was an incredible game!" Like we just did the other day. That was with Tuscany. Tuscany. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that should become my new top ten list <laughs> when we just look at each other and are a bit blown away by yeah how good the game. But was. still, I mean, the thing is, I don't think you can. You're, I don't think you're in a mental space now where you will allow that to happen in a way that it would have ten years ago. If you if if I said, honey, we got this new game that just showed up from CGE. You got to play it. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to get done this month? It's this game called Dungeon Pets. And I sat down and played it to you. Would you just like zone out? Have, what? And what? What? Geez, what? How, when will this game end? No, I don't know. I I still love Dungeon Pets because it's so charming and so lovely. And uh, you weren't loving it that day when we tried to play it in September. And it's not like you were any more stressed than any other time. It's not like there was anything in particular at that moment that was going on. You just couldn't get into it. Yeah. And um, and I think it is a reflection. It's, it's just, I don't think you have a natural proclivity or a, a leaning towards heavy games. You're not interested. I always thought you were because that's what we were playing. And, and I think I mistook your appreciation of the fact that a big, long, heavy game meant that the rest of the world disappeared yeah. for all that time. Yeah. And now our entire world is games. And so it doesn't have that special thing. And so only the stuff that you really have an affinity for, which is really more on the medium, light to medium, mm. short, sub hour, hour and a half at the most. That's where you, that's where your heart really sings. <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll enjoy a big, long, heavy, crazy three hour thing. But, um, I, I think that's really what it was. Although, I'm kind of guessing. Because we were like really blown away. And At now neither of us are yeah. 100% confident we can remember exactly what it was. Yeah. It was something around all of this. Yeah. And it was very potent at the time. And we clearly should have written it down. But I think we both thought this is such a huge breakthrough. How could we forget? And yet here we are two months ago, two months later, and we forgot. Because since then, we've played 60 more games. Yep. And life has moved on. Yep. All right. But anyway, it's something like that. And uh, you're right, Jack. You weren't the only one to ask. So a couple of other people asked. Uh, Jack's email came in first. So there we go. Okay. Martin uh, has a picture of a dog. That's Zoe, his cocker spaniel. And Martin has given permission to share the picture. All right. You guys are lucking out because this is a cute pup. All right. Um, I raved about Furnace, but I didn't talk about the dummy player in the final thoughts. I was curious... How, whether it enhanced or hindered the gameplay. As two-player gamers, what are our thoughts, because he said you, what are Jen's and my thoughts about dummy players is the answer of making a game compatible for two players. Okay, so honey, first of all, you have not played Furnace for three or four weeks, so you've forgotten it entirely. It was the game it's where... It's not the dwarves where you had to turn the furnace on. No, that's Dwergar. Okay, well, um, yeah, but I you remember. were manipulating furnaces. In Furnace, there was no actual furnace. Oh. That was the Age of Industrialization game. It was um, there were six buildings laid out, and we were bidding on them with our discs that were numbered one to four. Oh, yes. And if you were the high bidder, you got the building. Whereas if you weren't the high bidder, you got to activate the consolation prize. Yeah, the thing on top. Yeah. Okay. And we had four rounds, and you remember, first round, oh, I got one or two buildings and a couple things, and by the fourth round, for one, it took you like ten or fifteen minutes to. 
you just have to go away and come back. Because there's 15,000 different ways I can activate all these buildings. And we'll be done in a minute. You just have to wait, mister. Kind of a thing. So do you remember that game? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. You and I were not alone when we were playing that game. We rolled it after you put your bid and I put my bid. Yeah, we rolled the die, yeah. and the die was a number one through six. He said, oh, I'll just do my lowest bid I can for whatever building I chose. And um, so I think that was hugely important. I think the game would really lose a lot without that. Um, and, and the thing is, you can't. You know, obviously, it's an equal chance he's going to roll a one, two, three, four, five, or six. We have no idea what he's going to roll. <laughs> but um, and maybe... Maybe turn of maybe he sometimes he did go before us or after us. I don't remember now myself. But the thing is, you could see it was less about what was he going to choose and more about which bids had he already made. Because in that game, everything you're deciding is about right. Because if if I bid with a three, I want to lose so I can get three times the result of that, so I can get six whatevers. And um, but if I bid with a three, I better make sure somebody else at the table has a four. Yeah. Because if they don't, then I will win this, and I don't want to win this. <laughs> and um, so, taking into account what he had, and oh, he still got his four. So maybe he's going to outbid me, and you know, how does that change? I mean, it, it's enough. And honestly, I think it works well enough that, you know, well, he's got an equal chance of all these, but I, I can see that he can't put his last remaining two here, here, here. So it's going to be one of these three. And yes, it's completely random amongst those, but that's enough for me to, or for, I think, for players to give the same thought process to what, where is he likely going to land and what is that going to do to my chances? And in that regard, he emulates a human player exactly. And I think he's great. And I think the game would suffer hugely without. Now, you remember he existed, right? But yes. do you have any thoughts about it? Um, no, I think it was fairly easy to sort of figure out what he was going to do and, and understand what was going on with him. So I wouldn't say he was as good as a human because mm -hmm. he didn't do anything surprising. Right. But I thought it was important to have in there because otherwise stuff would have happened totally Well, what are the broader question that Martin asks? How do you feel? Because here's the thing. There is, that you know, this is one of those lightning rod debates in board gaming that, you know, dummy players are the devil's work. They should be excised. <laughs> Either make it a true two-player game or just call it a day and say it's a three-player minimum. None of this cheating and trying to throw in these dummy players to emulate. Yeah. And um, obviously, I think that's Silly talk, um, because some of the best game experiences we have come from dummy players. I think Furnace is great. We just played Seven Wonders the other day with the Free City. Remember the Third City, and yeah. every other turn you ha yeah. you choose one form, and, and you know, and we're we're Mainly, manipulating and exploiting yeah. that city to buy from us, or you know, then you getting in, yeah, or or, or, or bury cards. We know the other player wants yeah. and all of that, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And honestly, it's why I've always said, and I always will, because I've played a ton of Seven Wonders at every player count, because I played when I was at Splash Damage for months. It was like our obsession. And it, Seven Wonders is best as a two-player game. And it's because of that dummy player, because it is a richer, more complex game that gives you more control over your fate than at any other player count. And it gives you more to think about, more to noodle about. And it's it's fantastic. Um do you have any problem with dummy players? Obviously, I'm super pro. Yeah, I think I definitely prefer a dummy player over the old, yeah, just take another character and play two characters. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Right, right, right. So yeah. if that's the what's available as an alternative, then no. No, yes. Um, do you, I mean, do you have any downsides to dummy players? Um... Uh, not off the top of my head. 
Okay. <laughs> I don't understand that reference. No, there's supposed... no reference. It's just not off the top of my head. Okay. Um, I was going to say, you might argue that we have played some games where the dummy player is kind of complex. Because, you, you know, sometimes they try to emulate, they do more than just, oh, roll a die and they'll take a thing. Yeah. They're like, oh, well, hey, um, based on the previous card, draw a new card, combine these two cards, and you can see where these particular icons overlap. That determines what they're going to do and how many times they're going to do it. <laughs> and But if they do the, 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 these actions, they have to change the fundamental way it works and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, sometimes these get really complex to more fully emulate a human player who um, can do everything a real player would do, but also can give you enough hooks so that you can anticipate what they're going to do with some level, without perfect um, knowledge, but with this emulating the way you'd predict a human player. Yeah. I think you handle all that kind of complexity, so I don't have to deal with it. So you don't have a problem with it. No. All right. Well, there you go then, Martin. And thank you for a picture of Zoe. Uh, she's adorable. Oh, she's lovely. All right. And now that means I got to figure out. Oh, I got to do the picture. Well, oh, I didn't say that in the beginning. Oof. After you, oh, anyway, we'll worry about that later. Okay, moving right along to Tina, who um, wants to say thank you for the videos. Uh, very immersed and um, enthusiasm contagious. Thank you for watching, Tina. But the question, the question. Do Jen and I have a theme in particular we prefer in board games? I always look for games of fantasy, for example, uh, or anything exploring and researching a different world. Uh, not that I wouldn't uh, play other titles if they were brought to the table, but I just wouldn't put them for my collection. Do you find yourselves drawn to particular themes more than others, or do you prefer great mechanisms regardless of theme? And of course, this is kind of... An, we get this question a lot. What's your favorite theme? Yeah. But this was a bit different. Do you find yourself drawn to types of themes? Um, I think that I, I find myself undrawn to certain types of themes. What do you find yourself repelled by? Well, I have to... I don't know. I feel like I would be offensive to people if I told people the themes I didn't want... didn't wasn't definitive to. All right. So, Why? Oh, because it might be like, Wow, she doesn't like Russian games or... She's not interested in the Cold War. What game? Yeah, he's coming out and say it. It's fine. Well, Russian Cold War games. <laughs> Russian Cold War games. Yeah. You like Pandemic Season Zero, which was all about running around in the Cold War. That's because I've already been pandemic All right. Um, I don't have much of an affinity for, uh, what would you call it, the Japanese animation? Anime. anime stuff. Yeah. Anime. 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 That's not really my thing. Hmm. Uh, heavy duty rock bands. Not really my thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we liked that game in spite of it. Mm -hmm. What was it? Uh, thrash and roll. Thrash and roll. Yeah, thrash and roll. Um, those are the three that popped to mind that I wouldn't necessarily usually. That's a very eclectic collection of three specific things. Apparently, me trying to teach you Twilight Struggle had such a long-lasting impact on you, <laughs> even though it was probably eight or nine years ago, in the early days, uh, you're still smarting about it. Um, yeah, but so there's nothing particular you're drawn for. Oh, I think the art style tends to pull me in. I think the gadgetry tends to pull me in. Right, though that's presentation and mechanisms. Is yep. there anything, any theme, any setting, any world, any... It's fine if there's not. If they're all the same to you. There's ones you don't like, and then everything else is equal. I you like could care less. 
Huh? That charter stone was wonderful. Why? Because it was so cheerful, and I liked the art style of it, and I liked, yeah, the the looking through the world and the discovering stuff and things um, progressing. Mm-hmm. Daisy. All right. So you want more charter stone in your life? Yeah, I liked charter stone a lot. Okay. And we even went through it twice. Yes, sir. Almost. Unfortunately, due to my epic stupidity, we failed. Because remember, we had like four more to do with David and Angela, and we went up for the weekend at their place uh, on the way. On the way, and I forgot the game. I left it in the. I left it by the door. Yep. And we ended up playing a bunch of other stuff. Yep. Oh, so so dumb. Um. So all right. So. How about you? I I like. Dry, boring, economic Euro simulations. I like building stuff in medieval and Renaissance era Europe. I I I am drawn to that. I find that very pleasing and satisfying. I, I think while those games could be transplanted into any science fiction setting or whatever you wanted or modern day, I think you know there is a perception of a simplicity of that era in humanity. Where it is just about, oh, all you just needed was three stone and one clay, and you could make a monastery. It's and 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 two time units. It's you know, it, it it you know that kind of simplicity and abstraction just fits in that like a glove to me so well. Whereas it feels a little jarring if you're trying to do it in future or modern day. Mm-hmm. And but you know, but that kind of gameplay is what I really like. I like making and building things. As Jen discussed earlier, although for her it has to be a real thing. It's just making a thing in a game doesn't give her that same buzz, apparently. Yeah. I was gonna. I thought you were gonna argue and say no. I really do get a sense of oh, satisfaction for making an engine. Like having a good engine, absolutely. But I'd like it even more if my engine produced something. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, so yeah, I, I. It's hard for me to say that'd be my favorite thing, but I really do like it. And um. And then I'm also just really drawn to novel offbeat things. I mean, uh, we played Fair Robin the other day, and I thought that was awesome that it was a game that was secretly about organized labor. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was uh, that was fantastic. It just kind of snuck up on me. I guess I'm also... It's, they're very rare. There are very few games that do it, but I really like Game of Life style games. So Pursuit of Happiness, CV. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, those are fantastic, and it's just a shame more games aren't doing it. Where the sole goal is to get the most points by living the best life you can. And then we held hands. And then we held hands. Wow, a good one, honey. Yep. So, those would be some for me. And that was it for gaming-related questions with Jen. So now we're going to get on to the personal stuff, if you folks can handle it. We already got a little personal. We're going to continue to do so. <laughs> and if you don't want no more of that, because there'll be very little gamey stuff, uh, now is the time to get off. And thanks for listening. Again, questions of questions at raw.com. And we'll see you or talk to you next month. Talk to you so long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And you're still here. So hang on. Oh. And we'll Hello. be right back. Hello. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> Okie doke, personal stuff, pop culture, Jen's in my lives, you know, whatever. <laughs> Maybe even some politics will sneak in every once in a while. Although I used to do that a lot more and I try to tamp it down a little bit because Jen doesn't like to see my face get red. But anywho, the first question from Andrea is, um, 
have, since we've talked several times in the past about H.P. Lovecraft and his impact on games and, you know, his unfortunate racist past and all of that, Andrea was wondering if uh, we watched Lovecraft Country, and if so, what did we think about it? I watched it. I loved it. Jen had zero interest in it whatsoever. She does not want to uh, have a hard time sleeping because of nightmarish images that <laughs> will keep her awake at night because she just can't get them out of her brain. Uh, um, I thought it was a, I mean, I, obviously it's a, a hugely important cultural milestone in much the same way Black Panther is. And I very much appreciate it on that level, but I just thought it was really fun, wacky, just balls to the wall, crazy storytelling. And the weirdest thing about it was every episode almost felt like, you know what? This is the final episode at the end of season two or the end of season three. And it's like, geez, a whole bunch of stuff just happened in, in 52 minutes. What the heck? Where, I mean, and I really, you know, it's, you know, compared to so many um, shows that like, you know what, you could have told this, you didn't, you didn't need 12 or 15 episodes to tell this story. You could have done it in six to have Lovecraft Country go the opposite and say, oh no, no, we're going to tell an entire season's worth of stuff in one episode and we're not even going to explain half of it. And unless you're really paying attention, you're just going to have to be along for the ride. That was a really interesting take and I, have to, I found it really refreshing and different. I, I very much enjoyed it on that level too. Alrighty, but anyway, as a related topic, on a Lovecraft Country subreddit and many podcasts, um, uh, many people, mostly U.S. citizens, it seems, expressed great discomfort in the arc of many of the principal characters. Atticus, uh, see now this is getting kind of spoilery, so I'm not going to read this for folks who did not say it because you actually talk about several of the, of the key plot points of his backstory and whatnot. Um... But suffice to say that Atticus, who is arguably the lead hero or the co-hero, um, I would say him and Letty are probably co-heroes of the uh, of the story. Uh, he, you know, he has kind of a flawed past. He has dark chapters in his backstory. He is he is not pure as the driven snow. He has done things. He has seen things, and uh, there are some problematic issues to do with him. And so, anyway, uh, people have expressed discomfort with him as a hero character. Now, Andrea, as a European-Italian uh, viewer, uh, is really used to having principal characters that are not perfect, spotless heroes. But on many occasions, Andrea has heard or read that Atticus is not acceptable as a hero, that it is too difficult for the audience to find something to relate or identify with, hence it is not possible to relate or identify with Atticus, um, or that the absence... And that the absence of a hero the audience can identify with is, quote, a violation of storytelling rules. All of this seems not in line with my personal experience, says uh, Andrea. Um, I don't need a hero to be spotless. I don't, it doesn't mean Atticus should be considered an anti-hero. He's not a Walter White or a Joker. He's just a flawed person. And so here are the questions, having set that up while trying to avoid spoilers. Um, my European... Uh, perspective suggests to me that the average U.S. viewer reader can fathom, or oh, oh, oh your okay, your 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 English is a little broken there. That's okay. Uh, can fathom seeing an American that is not. Uh, you, you think a, a viewer should American viewers should be able to handle a uh, not clear villain doing bad stuff because the narrative. He's oh boy, I'm just gonna have to read this. All right. All right. Okay. Long story short. 
since I, I fear to fall into a stereotypical representation, I'd like to hear your perspective on this topic. Americans need spotless heroes, both in general and in the context of Lovecraft Country. I'm going to expand that a little bit, because I do think you've hit on something there, Andrea, that I've certainly noticed more and more and more and more and more and more and more in pop culture, is that we are seeing more and more and more and more and more and more, and more armchair critics who believe that they have figured out the rules of the road and what is required in an almost equation, uh, mathematical precision approach to have proper storytelling. And if the storytellers veer from that, they're doing it wrong. And um, I mean, and you're you're right. This this is one example that you know a hero. I honestly I don't know that I've seen this. That um, you know, you have to have spotless you know uh, you know flawless characters. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But I know of a similar one that's really come up a lot because of the star the new Star Wars trilogy and Ray in particular. That it's improper that they are doing it wrong. That the filmmakers or the storytellers, I should say, are making a mistake. If you have a uh, Oh, what's it called? You know, Mary Sue character, a character who can do no wrong, who uh, who basically goes through the experiences that the plot offers and doesn't grow and change. That if you do not have a proper arc for your lead hero, that they don't go through the three steps of of. Oh, I forget what it is. You know, the hero's journey. If you're not strictly adhering to the hero's journey, you have failed as a storyteller. And I see this all the time, and it's ridiculous. And so if you've heard podcasts um, where you've got similar armchair uh, narrative theologians giving their... Uh, well, you know, if you don't do these five things, you're doing it wrong, and you're a bad storyteller... They don't know what they're talking about, but they think they do because they've heard smart critics who have probably spent the better part of their academic career studying this stuff, and they appreciate that there isn't one um, end-all, be-all. To me, the perfect example, every time somebody says, oh, Ray's a terrible character because she never struggles, she never suffers, she never, she's just always just succeeds at everything, and she does not grow as a person. She's the same as... Well, first of all, one, you're not paying attention to Last Jedi, but whatever, regardless. My counterpoint to that is, uh, who's complaining about Back to the Future? Back to the Future is the perfect example of a character, Marty McFly who does not grow, does not change, does not learn a lesson, does not go on a hero's journey, and yet it is one of the most loved and revered pop culture stories of my generation, of you know, of several generations' lifetime. And by all... Anybody who complains about how, oh, if you don't have a character arc for your lead character, you're doing it wrong. Oh, but Back to the Future is great. It's one of my favorites. And I think that just goes to show that there is a burgeoning, growing class of commenters buoyed by their misassumptions and uh, you know incorrect reads of what they've seen on YouTube critical analysis videos that think they understand what it is and if you don't follow the rules you're doing it wrong. So it sounds like you're seeing something similar in the podcast or whatever that you're following for Lovecraft Country because there is no doing it wrong. Um, it's not doing it wrong to not have a hero that has to be spotless. It's totally fine. Just like a hero does not have to go through the typical hero's journey to um, not have a, an interesting and compelling narrative. So that's kind of where I come down. I, I, I kind of went a bit broader, but I don't think Jen has anything to say about any of that, do you, Honey Pie? Or maybe she does. Here we go. I do have something Ooh, to say about Ooh, go that. for it, Honey Pie. Uh, I don't know anything about Lovecraftian stuff. So it doesn't okay. matter with that. But basically, 
I think after you reach a certain age or maybe you have a certain amount of experience watching television shows and reading books, stuff starts to get predictable. Uh -huh. And I think actually it's really nice when something surprises you. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say, yeah, just going through the hero's journey over and 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 yep. over and over. Here we are in Act 2. He's crossed the threshold. Yeah. He's now returning home. I know all the chapter titles of that Joseph Campbell book, even if I never actually read it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just saying, I, I am in support of people doing things in a less programmed way. Does that mean you want to go back and watch Lovecraft Country? <laughs> I'm a visual person. I can't get weird stuff out of my brain. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. Jen would be the first to go insane in the Cthulhu-verse. Alrighty. Um, let's see. Jack uh, is back again, although this is because I missed one of his questions in a previous episode. And let's see, it was the what characteristics. Honey Pie, remember in the past there were questions about what makes me so wonderful? And then somebody asked, what makes no. you so wonderful? Right. And we you know, talked about that and we just kind of stumbled our way through because it's a very weird topic. Yes. So what makes... what? Uh, let, let me figure out what makes me so wonderful. That's just a very <laughs> odd thing to talk about. But Jack noted that... Um, both of our answers, when the one for you came up, implied that we think being wonderful is not necessarily being competitive, conservative, driven by critical analysis. Those are all interesting and important things to Jack. In greater proportion than emotional, emotion and empathy. Since Rado has adopted some characteristics along those lines, my newfound frugality regarding uh, beggars and servers. You know, we talked about all this. Yep. Uh, would I say Rado is now a less wonderful person than before? Main question. What characteristics, this is the real question, do you think make a wonderful person. What characteristics make a person the opposite of that? Oh, interesting. <clears throat> I think empathy is probably the number one thing that makes you a good person. Dang it, that was going to be my answer! Well, I, okay, I would say consideration, which is similar to empathy. Yeah, yeah. But I have always said that you're one of the most considerate people in the world. I try. And I don't always succeed, but I try. Yeah, you try. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, um, honestly, I mean, that is the single most important North Star that anybody can have in their life. Empathy for the, the suffering, empathy for the perspective, empathy for the needs, empathy for the desires, empathy for the drives, empathy for our fellow humans. Actually, empathy for everyone and everything. Yeah. Empathy for the earth, empathy yep. for animals, empathy for the spider that you're thinking about. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I can't kill bugs. I just can't, I can't stand it. I, I can't, I have a very, very difficult time with that. Um, we have mice and um, we have nice long lethal traps and we figured out the best place two miles away from our house that we can take them <laughs> that gives them the best chance of succeeding um, out in the wild because there's nearby dumpsters that are a nice warm place and they're, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, empathy is the, you know, the, a higher quotient of empathy leads to a higher quotient of wonderfulness, I think. And it's it's simple as you know the exact opposite. What is the antonym for empathy? Uh, selfishness, I guess. Right? Is that the opposite of empathy? I don't, maybe hatred. Um, is hatred a form of selfishness? Opposite of empathy. Go Google. Empathy is understanding and sharing of feelings of others. Apathy. Apathy. Oh, yeah. Empathy versus apathy. Empathy and apathy. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, no, but and, and apathy's a bit broader. Apathy I mean, is just, yeah. you don't care. It's, 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 uh, it's catchy. It's, it, apparently, it's antip antipathy. Antipathy is the opposite of uh, empathy. Although, it's, it's not enough just to, to, to care. 
it's to it's to care and you know basically every chance you get always remind yourself to walk a mile in the you know the footsteps of others so you can understand their perspective because nobody is a villain in their own story um it's it's one thing to to remind yourself to do it it's another thing to act on it yeah and that's much much harder and that's some place where we could all myself included stand to uh to improve but i i would say i i i it's it's a mic drop. I can't think of anything else. That's that sums it all up. It's all about empathy. It's all about you know caring about you know the the people who are not you. Yeah, yeah. Or everything that's not you. And the perspectives and understanding. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm 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 an atheist. I always have been, but I have always 100 percent believed in the golden rule that uh, you know, which is often changed to um, do unto others as they would do unto you. No, that is not the golden rule. Do unto others as, they, as you would have them do unto you. And you know, and that is a cornerstone. It's not a coincidence that that is a cornerstone of pretty much all organized um, religion. You know, regardless of whether the practitioners follow it or not, um, it is the basis because that, yeah, that, you know, have empathy for them. Understand what it is they want and need and try to treat them appropriately. Um Right. Of course, there's restrictions, there's limitations, all that, but that's what it comes down to for me. And and that was Jen's immediate response, too, so I guess you agree? Yep. All right. There you go, Jack. We're caught up. Now, uh, also, I missed a question on Marlon's uh, comments <laughs> from last month, so it was, amongst everything else that was non-game related, Honey Pie, he said, in five years, this was all to do with when we're uh, on the road, yes, yes. Uh, will Jen start her Jen's <laughs> Tea Run-Through podcast <laughs> in the camper van <laughs> Because there must be tons of delicious tea on the European oh, continent. Oh, boy, that would be fun. Jen visits tea houses. Mm-hmm. That would be fun. Uh, speaking of which, though, I should—I feel like I should say a couple of things about some teas I've just discovered. Okay. Since we're talking about I tea. don't know that anybody's asked, but you can go on ahead and do it. Well, he's asking This is tangentially. Uh, yeah, so what new tea have you discovered, Honey um, Pie? There's a new peppermint one. I think it's called Peppermint Peak by Celestial Seasonings. It's Again a black, with a Celestial Seasoning. It's a black tea with peppermint. It is really nice. I mm-hmm. highly recommend it. And then also by Celestial Seasonings. Again, with the, so you just need a Celestial Seasonings podcast, basically. Well, actually, what happened is I ordered a bunch of flavors last year. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody told me, I think it might have been him, that, you know, that the Almond Sunset is no longer available, I went and checked what I'd actually ordered. Yeah. And so I got out all the stuff I'd ordered last oh. year. <laughs> and so I, this is all last year's flavors. But okay. In theory, they're still available. But anyway, there's a ginger with probiotics, and it is delicious. Mm. I, I So I, I just wanted to say something about that and recommend it, because... There are new flavors and yum, yum, yum. Okay. All righty. There you go. There's a sneak peek of Jen's inevitable tea podcast. <laughs> um, Trucking tea with Jen or some such. Okay. Jean is not sure this has been covered before, uh, but would Jen be willing to give more details on the business side of her handmade glass? How is her experience with Etsy um, or other e-commerce sites? How does she create and host her website? What's her experience selling directly off the website? How does she take photographs? So we were just, uh, yeah, that's why Jen was feeling a little, you need to get something done today, of her art to post on the internet. Does she have any business advice for an emerging artist, not specifically related to glass art, but that can be applied to any um, art discipline? Although, really, I think, would you consider yourself an artist or more of a craft person? It's hard because depending on which country you're in, they call you different things. Oh, okay. All right. So, yeah, I'll. I'll this talk is all about you, that. honey pie. Okay. So, Jean, pull up a chair, get Woo! comfortable. Here we go. Okay. Jen's going to spill all the crafty beans. <laughs> So um, I've had a great experience on Etsy. 
I haven't sold anything glass, you know, business-wise on eBay other than, you know, some just... Now, actually, let's go back a bit, though, because before you went on Etsy, Etsy existed. You were fully cognizant of it, and you said, no, I'm not going to use that. I'm going to make my own web page. Which I did. Yes, you did. Oh, my gosh. And uh, let's talk about that. Okay. Well, so I used to be a graphic designer, and I used to do HTML coding and uh, WYSIWYG coding as well as things progressed, but... Um, and you know, you did some HTML coding as well. Mm. So we had the skills to do our own website and we, we had it that way for a long time. Mm. Um, I did used to sell some stuff off of my website, but not a tremendous amount. I don't think you could ever say, I mean, like maybe a thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. not, not really enough to bother with, but I was doing a lot of shows and in a lot of galleries. And so basically it was a, a nice big business card for me, for anybody who wanted to come and look at my work or, um, you know, see what kind of work I did if they wanted to have me in their galleries. So I think it paid for itself in that way. It just didn't pay for itself in direct sales to consumers. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it did because I got into these galleries and then people bought stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, When, was it about the time we moved to Malta? I think so. I think I, I switched from doing kiln form glass predominantly to doing lamp working predominantly. And that made a lot more sense to start selling online because it was shippable. My large platters and windowsill sculptures and stuff, I just didn't ever want to ship them anywhere because I wasn't sure that they would make it there alive. Mm -hmm. And it was expensive to ship them too. But but small pieces of glass is not expensive to ship. So it um, just dovetailed nicely. And being part of the game industry through you has been really helpful because it's kind of given me a niche market that uh, making player markers mm-hmm. and meeple oriented things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, I think I'm still pretty unique in the, in the industry for doing that, having those kind of niches. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting back to, okay. So, so I know a lot of artists have sold on eBay. I never have sold my stuff on eBay. Why not? Um, I think it's, I am sort of turned off by the auction of it. Okay. And I know you can do fixed pricing as well. And I know a lot of artists have sold on eBay and been very successful. But I don't know. I, I kind of felt like it just, I wasn't, I didn't want to have my stuff at auction. I just okay. want I just want to set a price. And if people are happy to pay it, then I'm happy to sell it at that price. And uh, maybe it's not very good because it's not, that's not the way to be collectible. But I don't know. Um Right. So Etsy, I've been happy with. Uh, I think on the whole, they do a good job taking care of the makers. It's unfortunate that it's gotten so huge. And if you don't have a niche market, it's really hard to differentiate yourself amongst all of the other people that make, you know, with resin or with wood or with ceramics or whatever. So you've really got to be out there promoting yourself and, and driving people to your Etsy site, I think, if, if you're going to be successful, because you're just not going to get found and become a radical success. Those days, I think, are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel very fortunate that I sort of have, like I said, this niche market with the Rada Runs Through crowd because they already know of me. So that's kind of my intro um, into having a good business. And let's Does see. Etsy warrant whatever percentage you end up losing? It isn't actually that expensive to be on Etsy. Mm-hmm. They've started doing something recently where they're um, doing Google ads for 
shops that are above, oh. I can't remember, X number of sales per year. Are you above X number of sales? I am. Oh. Yeah. So they are actually uh, doing ads on Google for my shop in particular. Have you seen them? I think that I did. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just a Google, you know, ad that comes up. Mm -hmm. And if people will click on that, then... Obviously, they go from Google to Etsy, and if they make a sale, then Etsy, th I think they take 10% mm -hmm. of that sale. But this is an ad that can appear Anywhere. on the New York Times yeah. website or whatever. Anywhere. Wow. Yeah. And so, and Etsy's doing all of this, search engine optimization and placement and blah, stuff, and it's not charging me upfront for any of it. Mm -hmm. It's if something sells, then they take 10%. And I'm like... You go, girl. You, yeah, that's what I want because I do not have the time or energy or patience or interest in any search engine optimization stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's really a great thing with Etsy. But I think it was, it might have been 10000 a year. Shops with sales of 10000 a year or more okay. are um, able to take care of. And I have some friends who are artists and they were complaining about this, how they didn't want to take part in it. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> that is... That is gold, man. And mm -hmm. so I've had a few sales come through on it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm grateful. I think it's wonderful. Um, so let's see. How did I create and host my website? We've It's just been since like 1992. Well, at the same time that you set up an Etsy shop, you still had Jennifer.net, which used to be, which was the URL that went to your, your personal blog that was 100% hand- HTML generated, yeah, and it had been forever, and it looked really primitive. <laughs> and I said, "Honey, you should just go on ahead and use one." I mean, there's all these things where it doesn't cost anything, and it's just an eight area WYSIWYG editor, and it's just and she said, "Which one?" I said, "I don't know. Just do WordPress. WordPress. That's one of them. Do that one." And she said, "Okay, could you do that?" And I said, "Okay, I'll figure out how to do it." And I did it. <laughs> yep. And I just used some template they had, and you said, "Okay, that looks nice." And yep. I showed you how to update it and do posts, and yep. so it's it's there have been some problems with it. It's hosted on. GoDaddy and I've occasionally I mean Jen did, did get hacked once and um, that was kind of a pain and we had to go through a lot of rigmarole and uh, but for the most part it's it's pretty innocuous or you know or not really a problem to maintain yeah and uh, you know if we're, if we were willing to pay for gold tier or platinum tier it'd be even easier but we're cheap and wherever possible we try to do it ourselves and they're like why can't we should just pay for the platinum tier <laughs> and have somebody else do it um, but the big question is, Honey Pie, how do you take photographs of your art and post on the internet? Well, okay, so last, what, two weeks ago, we spent some time trying to get us set up up in my studio. Tell us about before two weeks ago. Oh, well, just basically a phone and a sunny window. Mm-hmm. And it's been okay. You are constantly complaining. It's like your number one complaint of your entire job yeah. is you hate doing it so much. It's really... This is the problem. It's okay, except I hate it with a passion. Well, the thing is, none of it matters if I don't take a picture of it and get it online. Mm -hmm. I can make all the pretty stuff, and nobody's ever going to see it. And no I one's a tr no one's convinced by text descriptions. No, hey Jen, would you send me something pretty? <laughs> something kind of purpley. I don't yep. care what it is. Just send me something nice and purple. Yep. Um, so yeah, so uh, this is I've been struggling with this, especially this whole year because. I don't know. I just haven't had the energy for it, I guess. And I've got trays and trays of lovely things that I've made, and I've just keep intending to take photos of them and get them online, but it's not happening. And so anyway, a couple weeks ago, um, I enlisted the help of the husband, and he brought one of his cameras upstairs, and I got my I have one of those little pop up 
uh, light boxes that's you know made of fabric and mm. we tried to get it going and, and I thought we had done it but that was two weeks ago and I spent this last week making some kiln form stuff and getting the jewelry made into jewelry with you know bales gluing bales and stuff on and by the time I got around to taking pictures of it today the whole she, thing didn't work anymore. She forgot everything. I said look here you do it this way and this is the thing you have to remember this for this particular camera and this is where the files will copy and so anyway, I have now a bunch of photos, which may or may not be any good, <laughs> on various cameras upstairs, and I just thought, uh, I have had it for today. Yeah, so. long story short, this is, Jen can't stand it, and um, we're trying to create some kind of uh, assembly line yeah. for being able to just, um, you know, because it, 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 I mean, she spends hours and hours and hours and hours, um, you know, almost more time than she did actually making the things. I'm sure that's not the case, but... Probably not. Yeah. But... And so, yeah. when we And that is a nut we have not cracked yet. Yep. Um, do you have any business advice, Honey Pie? Oh, any business advice for emerging artists not specifically rated to glass? Um, uh, business advice. No. I'm trying to think of anything that's popping up. I mean, there's all the standard stuff like, you know, go to networking events and hand out cards and show people your stuff. And um, No. It's hard. It's hard. That's what it is. I would suggest take lots of pictures of whatever your stuff is, Instagram the hell out of them, cross-post them to Facebook, and then boost them. Pay 100 bucks, and so that 10,000 people... We'll see your stuff. Yeah, there's a good idea. And hopefully 10 out of those 10,000 people will be interested. And do it again next month. And just build over time. That's 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 what Facebook does. That's, that's how you get through to people these days. You just pay money. You pay an exact amount of money to get an exact number of people with specific um, parameters that you set. So do that. Yes. Okay. I think that's a very good advice. All righty. Good luck, Gene. Okay. Uh, let's see. Moving right along, we have Tom, who also wondered if we watched Love Cat Country. We already yeah. talked about that. Some more questions oh for gosh, Jen related tea. to tea. Wow. Do you have a favorite tea you have always recommended or you feel reigns supreme over all of teadom? Yes, I do. And what tea would that be? That would be Bengal Spice by Celestial, Celestial Seasonings. Seasonings. Yeah. Tom is a tea novice with so many choices. Uh, how do you pick what to brew next, Honey Pie? I have a lot of choices. And so it's just whatever I feel like during the day. So when you have a huge selection. You but how do you choose? What do you feel like? What does that mean? Oh, well, oh, okay. It's time of day, first of all, is, is important because I don't want caffeine in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be one thing. What time is it? Um uh, am I trying to stay away from cream? If so, then there are certain teas that I can drink that don't need cream. Sometimes I try to give up cream. Lose a little bit of weight. Mm -hmm. Not very often, though, because cream is delicious. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got fruity teas, and I've got minty teas, and I've got pungent teas. I, I think it just, yeah, it's just your mood. Yeah, I, I don't know how, how else to say it. Do you have a few gateway teas you would my would you would recommend? Ah, gateway teas. Gateway tea. Okay. 
Well, obviously Bengal spice, that's an herbal tea, so you can have it any time of the day. I think that's a wonderful one. I have, I have so many teas that I love. Um, if you were in England, uh, standard tea is PG tips, just a black tea. It's absolutely wonderful with a bit of cream and a bit of sugar in it. Um, but probably you don't have that. So, uh, a nice black tea in the States. I stay away from anything from Lipton. Ugh, yucky yuck. Um, I have... Tea snob. Tea snob. I buy a lot of tea from Harney and Sons, and they've got so many really good flavors. There's another company called Adagio, A-D-A-G-I-O, and they have a really good mango-flavored black tea that is excellent. Uh, but... Getting back to Harney and Sons, they've got some really good ones called, there's one called London Fog that has bergamot in it that's really delicious. Uh, they've got one called Paris that is, has really nice floral notes in it. Yeah, I don't know. I think you, you just have to start buying some. Uh, Harney and Sons has sample sizes, though. So you can buy 20 sample sizes. I think they're about $3 and there's about five cups of tea in there so it's not totally cheap but it's pretty cheap when you think about a you know you go buy a can of coke or something for a buck okay. it's less than that so yeah that's what i would do i'd say go to go to harneyandsons.com and buy a bunch of sample sizes and i think a doggy tea has sample sizes as well All celestial right. seasonings does not as far as i know so you have to buy a box of 30 tea bags from them but Bengal spice is well worth it. You will not regret it if you like cinnamon. Okay. Oh, and sweet. That's one tea that doesn't ever need sugar. It's, it's naturally sweet. It's quite lovely. Oh, and of course, there's the Pike Street Market spice tea. And that is a, a cinnamon and black tea mix. And it is naturally sweet as well. So it doesn't need cream. It doesn't need sugar. And you can get that at Pike Street Market. Um, Market spice. Google that. You'll find oh. places that sell it. Okay. Google that. All righty. Next up, we have Melanie, who has... Oh. You know, there's the Yorkies once again. Oh, so cute. Um, folks, you're finally going to see these Yorkies that Melanie keeps sending us pictures of. Oh, my gosh. Um, righty. And question. In the last podcast, we mentioned how recycling, um, and now it's not as easy as we think. Uh, Melanie's heard some stories about this on NPR. But what are other things that you do practically with Jen to lessen your carbon footprint? Uh, do you just say, well, we don't have kids. Uh, so the fact, uh, we have to fly places cause we don't have kids. We'll contribute to global warming in the future. You have leeway. Uh, well that was kind of a weird sentence, but, uh -huh. um, what do we do to lessen our carbon footprint? Everything. I mean, we do everything we can. We, we drive a Prius. Uh, I don't turn on the heat or the air conditioning unless it's really needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. I've taken military showers in the past when, like, visiting California when there was a drought. Um, we don't waste food. We've got beagles and chickens, so there's absolutely no food wasted in this house. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Well, we, we don't have a bunch of big boy toys is what I would think of them as, you know, like riding lawnmowers or boats or... Things like that. That. Uh, yep. When we moved here, we ended up having a yard, so we had to get a lawnmower. So you got the a little electric, little thing. yeah, the yeah. the weediest, teeniest. <laughs> um, 
mean, it's practically human-powered. It, so it does take a little bit of electricity, but not much. It's basically a weed whacker, and then you can put the weed whacker on wheels to, to convert it into a lawnmower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I think we we eat pretty ecologically smart. Um, yeah. I, one of the things, I mean, there's so much food wastage. You, you read those articles that, oh, people waste 30% of the food that they buy. So to me, that's huge. I grow, I have a garden, so we grow some of our own food. Mm-hmm. We have chickens, so we grow our own eggs. What else? Um, we don't buy a bunch of consumable stuff that, you know, like we're not into fashion or whatever, so we're not constantly churning through textiles. And, and to, the textile industry is a huge polluter. Huge. The fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Yeah, we're really low on consumption. And certainly one big thing is, I think we've talked about this in a previous podcast, moving back to the States, we've really been surprised uh, how satisfying it is to whatever shopping you do do, to do it at a used store. Yep. And so, you know, the more people did that, the less new stuff would have to be created. Uh, So that's a big one. And, uh... Yeah, it's just mostly consumption-based stuff. You know, like Jen said, she it, it was freezing this morning. And she's like, ah, just here's another blanket. No, I said it's <laughs> freezing and we turned on the heater. Ah, I've been the, under a blanket for kettle, quite a while. The kettle said that the temperature in the house was 59 yeah. degrees. And the thermometer said it was 61. But I thought that was too low. Do, do we compost, honey? We would if we didn't have chickens and beagles. But basically, they take care of everything. Mm-hmm. Do you ride bikes instead of driving a car? Um, actually, when we lived in Malta, I walked almost everywhere. Yep. Well, except, you know, yeah, every day if I, if I had to go into town to get groceries or um, drop off post, I'd walk. Mm-hmm. And we had a scooter there, so we would sometimes scoot into Victoria, which was about five miles away. But if it was a big shop, a big shopping day, we would take the car. Um do you have solar panels on your home? No, I've looked into it in England, actually, and our roof is so small because it's a little Victorian house. Um, it's not worth it for them to come out and put the, the panels on. What about here? I haven't looked into it here. Why not? I've had a few other things going on. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. But I'd love, I'd love to do that. Mm-hmm. I'd lo- I'd like, I totally like the idea of being off-grid and being, you know, self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Mario has a few questions. Oh my gosh, there's, they're bulleted. Um, well done. Oh, with Jen. Oh, thank goodness. Is that my... Whoa. Oh, what's all that? Show game questions. Why? That's all your stuff up there. Yeah, okay. So I haven't done that, but there are... Oh, oh you know, and yeah, he did say some of these were for Jen, but yeah, you aren't going to have any of those. So uh, Mario's one non-game related question. Position on fireworks. How did the both of us, the dogs, the chickens deal with them while we lived in Gozo? Or are they just a thing uh, from Malta and Gozo you kind of ignore? Well, um, when we were there... For folks who don't know, Malta is absolutely insane for fireworks. Malta is one of the smallest countries in the world, but it has one of the highest per capita uh, fire... They have like four different full-time year-round fireworks factories. And every year, without fail, 
a dozen people die working in them, <laughs> trying to work overtime oh. to make fireworks to fulfill the uns- you know, the insatiable need for the Maltese people to blow stuff up as loud as they can. Yeah, and they do like it loud. Yes, and They're it's not like just cards. once a year with a you know an Independence Day type thing. Uh, all year long, there are festas. There are festas, festivals that require. Fireworks regularly going off so loud that you would assume you are literally in a war zone. Yep. Uh, because they they have that much percussive it's, force. It's not pretty fireworks, sparkly stuff. Yeah, it is noise yeah. fireworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we had Tula and Dobby at the time, and they both were scared crazy by it. Yeah. We lived in uh, Emdina the first year that we were in Malta, and... Amdina had a week-long festival, and we were only there for a year. <laughs> but when they did their week-long festival of just bombardment, they would. This is a walled city, so that not only are you hearing the percussive of the the firework going off, it is echoing and bouncing off of all the stone walls in yeah. the city. It was just incredible. Yeah, it, it feels like the world is going to end. Yeah, and um, that cured them. I will say they after that they were like well, whatever. After a year of that, yeah. Well, but it was it was that summer festival, the uh, whatever they called it in Emdina. Mm-hmm. That was the Feast of St. Francis or something like that. can't remember. Anyway, um, yeah, they were desensitized after that. Yeah, and I would say the same is true for um, Daisy and Gertrude as well, that they seem to not be terribly bothered. Actually, we're very lucky. I, probably Daisy had the same thing going on in Italy. Yeah. So she was used to it already. And Gert um, just... We, by the time we got Gert, we were living in Gozo, and we were far enough away from any city doing their uh, their petards that it mm. was it was a reasonable volume okay. <laughs> being three four miles away from it. So, um, yeah, and there was nothing you could do. You just had to deal with it. There was that you couldn't say, "Please stop doing them." Because <laughs> the locals, they loved them. Yeah, it was absolutely insane. Yeah. We didn't care for it at all. Um, it's just, it just insanely annoying. And, you know, places like Valletta would have big firework displays for pretty sparkly. Yeah. World class, you know, best of the, you know, best firework displays in the world type thing in this tiny little country that is just obsessively crazy about fireworks. And I, I couldn't tell you why. I would imagine it probably has something to do with, you know, their experiences, you know, surviving through World War II. And, um, you know, it seems like it was mostly older generations that really dug mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. And oh, I think, honey, we are at the end of the line. Wow. It's just time for oh you goodness. to provide some uh, words of wisdom. Although there's an interesting twist this yeah. month. Yes. In addition to Henrik asking for your words of wisdom, yes. Nathan decided to uh, provide some wisdom for Jen. So we're going to have a wisdom off. Ooh. I All like right. Here's that. what Nate says. Everybody will have to decide who wins the wisdom of the month award. Nate comes. Hate is such a powerful emotion to waste on someone you don't even like. I agree with that. All right. And I was going to say something else, but now I feel inspired to say hate is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. All right. I don't think that's exactly the quote, but that's the idea of it. All right. If we're going to talk about hate. So we're having a hate wisdom off. Yep. You're not going with your original one? I'll, I'll dig that back up. For some reason, my phone keeps going back to Google from... The place I, I thought I'd left it open. But anyway, hold on. That's very strange. Yep. Hold on. 
Oh, here's a good one. Okay. So I, I looked up on voting, some voting quotes. All right. This one is by, oh, see, it's, hold on. It's slowly loading it's, pictures and that's causing Oh, is that what is it doing? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, who knows if it's going to, oh, there we go. There it is. Where did it go? Sorry. I had this just already. I just turned off the screen. That was your first mistake. Oh, so far, Nathan's winning. Yes. Oh, here's a Stephen Colbert one. Can't wait for tomorrow when I get to exercise my patriotic duty as an American. Cam complaining about how long it's taking to vote. <laughs> I hadn't gotten to that one yet, so I must be too far down. Uh, sorry, sorry. Fill the, fill the air. Okay, folks. I, I think she's got it. Hold your finger on the screen so it doesn't disappear. Okay. Or go, go, go. Bad officials are elected by good citizens who do not vote. Okay. All right. There you go, folks. Some closing words from wisdom from Jen. And thanks, as always, for listening. We'll be back in a month's time if you, in fact, come up with some questions for us at questionsatrado.com. And now Jen is probably going to go make dinner while I go back to... I've totally lost the thread of whatever I was talking about before. What's for dinner? We are going to have ham... Ham. Okay. Ham. There you go. And probably pumpkin. And pumpkin. Yes. Some homegrown pumpkins. Yep. All righty. Uh, and uh, as always, folks, thanks very much for supporting the show, if you do. And thanks very much for listening, if you have. <laughs> Talk to you later. <laughs> so long and bye-bye. Bye-bye.